0: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host. And with me is a guy who really wants a magic wand TV remote control. My co-host.
1: Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season back from Olympic hiatus last week with an in-depth discussion on the following with Andy and Nico, Castle, Almost Human, Intelligence, Person of Interest, Supernatural, Psych, and Revolution, and our sitcom section including How I Met Your Mother, New Girl, Modern Family, and The Big Bang Theory. Then we are going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on The Walking. Dead, the season two premiere of The Americans, a watch it or not of mind games and mixology, elementary and grim, and maybe even a few more things I've forgotten.
0: But before we get into all of that, we've got a special edition of News with Nico for you guys.
1: Cancelled. Ripper Street cops a season three renewal. BBC America's Ripper Street has been renewed for season 3 almost 3 months after the late Victorian era crime drama was put out to pasture helping pave the way for the resurrection was a deal with Amazon which acquired subscription streaming rights to the BBC America co-production for the UK the episode will air exclusively on Amazon Prime instant video which has just launched in the UK and will encompass the Amazon service previously known as Love Film before airing on BBC 1 a few months later Amazon 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 will also be the only streaming service where UK viewers can watch and catch up on the drama's first two seasons. This is just Amazon's latest move in its ongoing struggle against the reigning king of instant streaming, the all-powerful Netflix, which also recently revived AMC's The Killing for a shortened final season. Amazon recently acquired the exclusive streaming rights to extremely popular shows like FX's The Americans, which I absolutely love, NBC's Hannibal, which is pretty good, and the CW's Veronica Mars, which Dan and I both are huge marshmallows.
0: It was on Netflix until they took it down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this is all... All in addition to their new crop of drama pilots, original programming, which viewers can vote on to help decide which ones get picked up to the series. The company still has a ways to go before it can even think about toppling Netflix, but it's definitely putting in some real effort. There's no word yet on when Ripper Street's third season will make it to the U.S., But BBC America will continue to co-produce the series, which is currently airing its second season in the States, and BBC Worldwide will handle its international distribution. Production on the third season will begin in May 2014. Now, I'm a big fan of this series, but got into it well after the initial run, and therefore was not able to bring it to the Across the Airwaves network for reviews.
0: Yeah, I don't know, this Amazon exclusive stuff. I think it's making Netflix a little nervous. I'd be concerned.
1: Well, it's definitely the strongest opposition or contender to go up against them. Yeah, for sure. Doctor Who's newbie Samuel Anderson from the History Boys and Gavin and Stacey will recur on the new season of Doctor Who as Danny Pink, a teacher at Cole Hill School where companion Clara Oswald, played by Jenna Coleman, also works. For the fourth time in Doctor Who history, Cole Hill School is coming to the aid of the TARDIS, previewed executive producer Stephen Moffat in a statement. In 1963, teachers Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright accompanied the first Doctor. These days, it's the turn of Jenna Coleman and clara oswald and very soon now sam anderson as danny pink will be entering the world of the doctor but how and why answers are coming this is interesting news and we may see another double companion for a time on doctor who we shall see i don't
0: know is this a love story kind of thing?
1: I, I don't know. You know, now that the doctor has regenerated, maybe, yeah. maybe there's not going to be the same spark that there was between Matt's doctor and now Peter's doctor.
0: They seem to be going for a really old school Doctor Who feel with this new series that's coming off.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I recently watched the first two episodes of the original Doctor, the original season of Doctor Who, and I, I see exactly what they're talking about, this Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright accompanying the first Doctor. They follow the Doctor's granddaughter, and she is a student trying to pa- She's a Gallifreyan, and she's trying okay. to pass off herself as a human. And she goes on these trips with the Doctor during her weekend's, and comes back and she'll make these brilliant statements about physics that you know are well beyond her schooling but then she'll say things that humans don't understand yet and they think she's crazy. So they think that there's something going on. They follow her back to the junkyard where she lives and they walk in and they find the doctor and the TARDIS. And as sort of a way to keep them from turning them in, he takes them with them on a trip and (laughs) and thus these two teachers accompany the doctor. It'll, It'll be interesting to see if they do something similar to that with This Danny Pink character, he follows Clara home or follows her because she's always running late or always just barely getting to school on time. And he wants to know what's going on and happens to stumble upon the doctor and her and going on missions. And then much like Rose had Mickey and Mickey kind of stumbled upon the doctor as well, that this might be the case.
0: So this is really going to be something that very old school fans of Doctor Who are going to enjoy. Yeah, I think so. I think
1: so. Especially with Capaldi being older than Matt. Yeah. And being the oldest one of the four that has taken over the new crown of Doctor Who, I think that it may have a little bit of a feel to kind of capture some of those older viewers that maybe had been put off by such the the youth of Matt Smith's Doctor. I don't know. For sure. Is a Farscape movie in development? This is wild. Farscape fans may be getting their own serenity. According to io9, a cinematic continuation of the Australian sci-fi series is rumored to be in development a decade after the series ends. Jim Henson's son, Brian Henson, who executive produced the original series and directed the Farscape The Peacekeeper Wars miniseries, is reportedly set to return as director. Tor provides the following summary of the, again, rumored plot. Set to follow the awesome comics written by RFP favorite keith r.a deconado the film would follow john and aaron's son diargo or little d as he seems to be referred to because their baby was exhibiting a set of interesting powers that made him a magnet for galactic villains we find that john and aaron hid their son on earth to grow up now the kid is 19 and ready to go into space with his parents the farscape show ran from 1998 to 2002 with the peacekeeper wars airing in 2004 the original story follows an astronaut. John Crichton who finds himself thrown through a wormhole into a galaxy where the militaristic peacekeepers hunt him and his new allies. I absolutely loved the Farscape show and the miniseries wrap up and I'm excited to see where the story goes. I also love the idea that this is the serenity for Farscape fans. Awesome news I just hope it happens.
0: Yeah we'll see about that it's interesting it's gonna follow their song. Yeah. Yeah see how that goes over
1: daredevil and other netflix slash marvel series to film in new york city for authentic feel july start date set the hell's kitchen based daredevil will fight crime in a bona fide new york city thanks to disney's plum deal to film its upcoming marvel hero series for netflix on location in the big apple as reported by variety disney ceo bob Iger said at a tuesday press conference that it was very very important for us to be in new york to lend the upcoming series an authentic feel Authenticity comes with a price though. Even with enticing tax credits, the Walt Disney Company will shell out $200 million over three years, resulting in 400 full-time jobs and 3,000 part-time production jobs to film the four 15-episode series, which will follow in order the characters of Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, and then Luke Cage. Once all four have made their Netflix debut, they will team up for a miniseries event that reimagines The Defenders, Marvel's dream team of self-sacrificing heroic characters. Production on the Netflix Marvel Initiative is set to start in July, with the Daredevil series eyeing something around 2015 premiere. Disney isn't messing around with that nice $200 million price tag, but this seems like an awesome plan that could be very successful and potentially change the game yeah. for streaming TV versus traditional network television. Once again, we'll have to wait and see how things play out.
0: It's definitely going to chase the landscape on how superheroes are marketed.
1: Absolutely. That's a lot of money to throw into yep. a show. And, I mean, it's not all going towards one show, but it is all one project, essentially.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's going to be good. I, I absolutely think it's going to be good. I think if they're putting that much money, it's got potential. You get the right writers. Okay, really, I think this is more of what people are looking for for Marvel than Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has done a good job. but they want to see a superhero. Show for Marvel more in the vein of what Arrow is but I think this is going to do it
1: yeah I think you're right original Ghostbuster and SCTV legend Harold Ramis has died at age 69 Harold Ramis who wrote and directed some of the best comedy films of the genre's golden years has passed away at the age of 69 according to the Chicago Tribune and just about every news source out there because he was that beloved Yeah. though Ramis was most well known for his movies including Caddyshack Ghostbusters and National Lampoon's Vacation his early years as a comedy master mind were forged on the legendary canadian sketch show sctv which he wrote for and performed on as it did for many of his sctv co-stars the canadian show would springboard ramus to hollywood where he wrote and or directed animal house meatballs back to school stripes ghostbusters groundhog's day and analyzed this as an actor he played geeky characters such as ghostbusters dr egon spangler and stripes russell zisky ramus's influence on comedy today cannot be overstated Ramis died of complications from an autoimmune inflammatory vasculitis earlier this week. Dan, did you have any thoughts about this? Yeah,
0: it's it's tragic it really is. Carol Ramis has been a big part of my life in terms of I mean he was my childhood. I was I loved the Ghostbusters when I was a kid. I had all the toys and the firehouse and all of that. And he was one of the people that brought that to life for me, which was great. And it's sad to know that he's gone, that there's one less Ghostbuster in the world. And really, my dad and I had bonded over watching a lot of these films that he had done. I think I've seen just about all of them. I've watched them with my dad and recite the lines all the time and stuff. So, uh, you know, it's, it is. It's, it's huge to see a writer that was such a big part of my life and probably influenced things I wanted to do come pass away and not be with us. He's definitely going to be missed and his work will go down in history. I don't think anyone's ever going to forget these movies, especially Caddyshack Ghostbusters, National Lampoon's Vacation. Those will forever be staples of comedy kind of staples of a lot of people's movie collection. And you have to say Harold Lear's life, a great life being able to do that for so many people. But it is sad to see him go.
2: Yeah,
1: and we'll close this week's news with Nico with a few lines in his own words.
2: I'm more on the wall than they are. It's definitely true. Uh, I think I have hidden somewhere deep inside me is an alter ego that's a lot like Bill's or Dan's or John Belushi. I mean, I admire those guys for the incredible courage it takes to to be as crazy as they are. i wish i was more like that and i think the way i express it is in the things that i write you know for them or with them and in the kinds of comedies that i do i mean people often seem surprised based on the films that i've worked on they they think that uh, people will say oh you're so much smarter than your films or you're so much more serious than your films but uh... i think the films reflect the side of me that i don't really get to express you know i'm a a husband and a father and uh being a director you know requires that you act like everybody's father you know and like everyone's psychiatrist as well so um i, I don't get to act out a lot and uh, i just channel it through the writing i think
1: now to kick things back off we're going to jump into the following with andy and my discussion on the episode fly away
3: Ryan and Max calling the FBI when they find out where Lily and her family are staying. However, Mike has his own plan for taking on the killers. Meanwhile, Joe tries to cope with his new working arrangement with Lily, and Luke deals with the aftermath of Giselle's stabbing.
1: This week's episode once again ramped up the action, as Ryan, Hardy, and crew actually got crap done this week. Aside from being just a few steps behind Joe and the FBI mole, that is, they actually got their crap together and almost got their man. It's funny how the mole was introduced this year to retro-explain the FBI's ineptitude in season one, even though Agent Mendez would rather blame it all on the screw-ups of her predecessors rather than admit that there might be a mole. Anyhow, Mike knowing that there is a mole now and that Joe was alive led him to Ryan Hardy's motel doorstep, ready to, quote, go off the reservation with him and Max. But something's gotten all twisted inside of Mike, giving him more of a sadistic edge And you know what? I loved it. The way he just stabbed at Luke when he and Lily were having that standoff on the bridge, or how he almost beat Luke to death with his bare hands later on. Great stuff from Mike this week. It really is showing sort of how messed up he is. What do you think, Andy? Do you like this twisted version of Mike, or would you rather him be more the Boy Scout slash conscience of Hardy from last season?
3: Well, here's the thing. I'm on both ends, actually, because one... Like I like that we are going back to the story plot that we saw in the last couple of episodes last season, where he was starting to become more like Ryan and starting, you know, to become more violent and so on with the vict- you know, with the, with the criminals. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you know they're still touching on it because I don't think it was resolved last year. But at the same time, I felt like when we saw him beat up that twin, like it was that was probably the most brutal thing we have, we have seen on the following this season, to be honest.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was almost as brutal as what they were trying to do to him when they captured him that one time and started beating on him, you know?
3: Exactly. But I am I like the dynamic. I like that now that the, the roles have been switched, that Ryan is now the one who has to try and, you know, kind of save him in a way, try to help him and so on.
1: Sure. Do you think it was a little bit ironic or a little pot calling the kettle black when Hardy gave him sort of a, what is wrong with you, man? At the end of the episode, when just five minutes before he had stabbed that guy on the stairs, you know, and and killed him just to keep him quiet. Do you think it's a little bit, I don't know, hypocritical of, of Hardy to, to be coming down so hard on Mike for, for beating on Luke? No, I think he's doing the right
3: thing because, you know, he knows the stuff that he did, you know, last season. You know, he knows how, you know, how dangerous this can become. Yeah. So I like that he's actually, you know, I think he has a right to say, oh, you know, you have to, you know, you you can't be like this. It's not
1: good at all. Yeah. I sort of see it as Ryan being like, you can't become me. You need to be the the level-headed one. You need to be the one that's on the right side and everything like that. I think Mike is really struggling with that because we saw him give himself up on the bridge so that that innocent guy didn't get hurt. That's still the good guy, the good agent, the moral guy stepping in there. He could have easily just snuck up behind Lily and slit her throat or something like that. And, you know, obviously that's not the way that the show wants it to go down, but that's one of the options. But he couldn't allow the possibility that that innocent guy could die. And so that's still the struggle being shown of the good guy and the bad guy. So I, I like that as well.
3: Yeah, I will say though is that the one thing I did like with with him stabbing that twin was that it was the heroes did something unexpected because you know for the majority of the series we we always expect these you know we always know when they're supposed to you no know, attack or shoot or stab or something you know when it comes to the good guys but with the bad guys you know we you never know so I like it this time we you know it was something that we didn't see coming from
1: the heroes. Sure, that's a great point, Andy. I like that too. Yeah. Now. Not only did this episode ramp up the action and close out a big chunk of this season's story at just shy of the midway point, it made the perfect argument for a shorter following season. Hell, what is this? Episode 6? I think a shorter run for this season would actually be better, since we're now seeing more of those being successful these days. A bunch of shows are doing 10 episodes, maybe 13 episodes. Fifteen episodes, as we discovered last year, may be just a few too many or too long for this particular premise. I think a ten episode season may have been better, and with that in mind, we'd be halfway plus one at this point. Now, don't get me wrong, I enjoy this series, but I'm worried that it could feel like it drags on for a while in the middle like it did last season. However, to the show's credit, they did alleviate some of my concerns about a dragging middle. I was assuming the Lily-Joe arc would drag on for five more episodes, giving us more stare-downs and power plays within the murder manor, like we saw in In Havenport last year. But this episode blew that all to hell almost immediately. In fact, post-coitus, Joe was kind of over Lily. Sure, Joe succumbed to Lily's spell last week, but as soon as she mentioned Venezuela, he realized that despite her being a sort of a similar sicko or psycho he wasn't really ready to go all in with her he also didn't realize how much of a target she was that ryan was actually in town looking for him andy were you surprised that the lily and joe arc ended so abruptly in this episode i sure was
3: yeah i was too but i just have to say you know and this is going to sound so weird but you know hey what hasn't andy said at this point? it isn't weird on the following section <laughs> is it just me or did is lily so much harder than she's evil
1: I don't know that's a possibility I don't I don't see it I know you mentioned it last week that you I she... did? Oh, I think okay, so
3: great, great, I'm already that crazy <laughs> yeah I think well, well she's a beautiful well you know uh, the actress who plays Lily she, she's a beautiful woman
1: mm-hmm. I will not argue with that <laughs> But it was just that
3: personality-wise, when she became evil, I was just like, oh, she's uh, la, 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 la. Oh, I definitely
1: I think she's more interesting now that she's evil. She was kind of annoying or kind of just there when she was- Not
3: annoying, but she was, you know, the Claire
1: replacement. And I was yeah, like, no, yeah. I don't. This is not the
3: kind of show that you're supposed to have relationships and so on. The only per- couple you can ship is Gemma. <laughs> Who is jo- that?
1: Joe and Emma, <laughs> nice.
3: yeah, not not Gemma Simmons from Ages of Shield, uh, Gemma as in Joe and Emma.
1: Yeah.
3: Okay. Uh, no, but I was surprised. But you know, this is one of the down parts with having a shorter season with you no know, with only fifteen episodes because you know we're always we're always halfway through, so they had to start wrapping things up. But yeah, I didn't see it coming at all, to be honest.
1: Okay. Would you rather it be a longer season, like a twenty-two, or are you? No,
3: I don't think th- I, you know because Game of has this thing with the fact that you know that you know that he can only do this amount of episodes. Mm-hmm. I guess you know there's not much we can do about it.
1: Yeah, see, I I almost think it would would be better to actually go shorter and keep it action-packed every episode so we don't get any drag. I, I'm not seeing it as much this season, but last season, there were a couple episodes in the middle that were kind of filler. But it was a new show! It was a new show! It was trying to find itself! That is true. And maybe I'm being hypercritical, but
3: I, no, 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 I, no, no, it, it, no it's a, um, you know, it's good to be, you know, it's good to be critical and so on. I think that this is, you know, I think that's a valid argument that it's better to have a sugar season and so on. I think that because, I think the reason why it worked so well last season, you know, why it may have worked last season was because Joey was involved. And now, you know, you, you, know you had stuff with him and Joe and so on that you could do.
1: Sure. But I, I don't know. Okay. Now, once Joe was done with Lily and realized she was not going to be a sugar mama this season, he sort of skulked back to Emma, but in full-blown I'm-a-failure mode no less. Anyhow, I liked that Joe actually stuck to his word regarding Emma and that even though Mandy sort of betrayed the two of them and ratted their escape plan out to Lily, she wound up tagging along with them in the end as they sped off leaving Lily's life in shambles. I think it's good that it's not just Joe and Emma because they do need to start a new group together and having Mandy as a third makes them a group and not just a pair. I thought in a perverse way, it was pretty great to hear Joe act so callous towards Lily over the death of Luke in his little goodbye call. That was. Oh,
3: I got, I got a turn on when that happened. I'm, I'm sorry. Go
1: on. Go on. That was pretty great. I, I, I liked it. That's classic Joe being just evil. And I I suppose she doesn't really know that Luke is still alive. But the fact that she thought he was dead made that call even more chilling and just great Joe stuff. I also had this crazy feeling that Joe was implying that maybe Emma possibly had written that new Joe Carroll murder novel they'd been featuring this season, the one that they keep referring to. I don't know. There was something in the interchange between the two that made it seem like he was implying that she had written it. And that's why she said, you know, but it was so good. And he was like, yeah, it was good.
3: <laughs> I, I don't think I I didn't get that implication that she had written it, actually, like, because he would have then he would have said, you know, you're a good writer. Like, why would
1: he be so vague w- about it if it's I if think it they wasn't. want to make that come out as as uh, some shocking twist at the end? I, I don't oh, know. Gracious, a book. <laughs> she wrote a book that changes everything. Well, it might mean that you know his followers are better writers than her than he is, and he did kind of admit that he is not a very good writer in this in this little thing, and that's why I was he sort of like
3: a writer that makes me so like no you know you, you, Joe don't be so hard on yourself you you, you talk like a writer yeah. you, you you are deep so I don't you know I'm sorry you know please I'm not gonna interrupt sorry go on.
1: No, uh, this was – that was the question I was going to ask you was, did you think I was reading too much into their little discussion of that?
3: No, 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 no. (laughs) I was doing the same thing. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, I'm so annoyed still that we – that they have not released like a book or like a a short novel from, you know, written from his perspective as a marketing thing for the show because I would love to read his words on paper
1: yeah you know the show castle has done that they've they've released like six novels now in the six seasons that they've been on the air and they're actually pretty good they're ghost written by a fairly decent mystery writer and then they make it like it's written by the character on the show and That they could easily do that on this and make it a joe carroll novel and it would probably sell for quite a few of the of the hardcore fans of this show
3: yeah. Uh, by the way, I had to say one thing about Max. She looks so much like the girl from Blacklist. Oh, do you think so? Yeah. Like every time I look at her, she's like, you know, oh, she's beautiful and blah blah. blah. She looks so familiar. So then I, I was, you know, go through IMDb or whatever, and then I saw a, a photo of Blacklist. And I'm like, but wait a minute, that looks like her. What the heck is going on? D- don't you think so? I, I don't see it.
1: I don't know. <laughs> so I don't see it. But I'm not saying that they don't look alike. I just don't see it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's our discussion for this week's episode of The Following.
0: Join us next week for the episode Sacrifice.
1: And with that, I'm going to hand things back over to Dan as we talk about Castle.
0: Okay, now that we've wrapped up with The Following, we're going to talk about an episode of Castle that was quite thought-provoking, got a little less intense than the following episode. Gave us a brief there, got to the intensity of that following episode. So let's get into the summary on this Castle episode. Room 147. <laughs>
1: Castle and Beckett seemingly have an open and shut murder case when a woman confesses to having murdered a struggling actor. But when they determine the woman couldn't have done it, another comes forward to confess just as convinced they did the murder. The team realizes that multiple confessions by strangers have made this a mysterious case indeed.
0: as the summary just mentioned, this Castle episode started out with a head scratcher of a woman confessing to a murder that she couldn't have committed, which is something we've seen before on other police procedurals. However, with this instance of walking backwards through a case to clear an innocent person's name. The writers were able to suck me right into the story by not just having one person confess to a crime they did not commit, but three people. Nico, was this an exciting and new way to handle the classic innocent person being framed scenario that left you intrigued with this week's mystery?
1: Yeah, Dan, having the multiple people confess to the crime and have the exact details correct really made this an interesting case and and an interesting mystery as well. I liked how they kept the mystery going throughout the episode and when the final guy came in to confess they even blew him off, so that was kind of funny. That made it fun at the end when he wanted to confess since he never got to and Beckett made that quip that if she had to hear that confession one more time she'd s- shoot someone. I would say this was one of the better mysteries in this show has had in a while and, and that's saying something because this has been a pretty rock solid season of Castle. Yeah,
0: well and the jokes, I mean the fact that they did a really clever mystery, that kind of also made kind of a fun joke out of it was great stuff. Sure. I mean it was everything you wanted it to be. It was funny, it was serious but kind of had its twisted turns. So excellent joke job with how they put that together. and You're absolutely right. This is one of the better mysteries. And yes, this season has been good on top of that. So yeah, great, great synopsis there all around, Nico. Now, with this conundrum of such kind of a complicated mystery, came a very rare moment from Castle where he couldn't come up with a wild crackpot theory to explain why three people confess to the same crime. Nico, did you feel this was out of character for Castle? Or did they make up for it later with him making the observation about the refrigerator? You
1: know, I, I was not concerned or felt it was out of character because it was a plot device or way of showing how crazy this experience was for everyone that even Castle couldn't come up with a crackpot theory. That's all I really saw it as. So I wasn't too okay. concerned.
0: Yeah, Yeah. just double-checking on that. Yep. I no kind problem. of felt the same way. And as, for a person, uh, as for a portion of this mystery's resolution the three suspects confessing to the same crime had to do with a self-help cult called emi using drugs to erase people's memories as a means of covering up a hypnosis treatment gone wrong Nico, I know there are shady cults like this in the real world from watching the news but are there drugs out there that could really cause memory loss to the degree that it was betrayed in this episode? And regardless of if it's real or not, did you buy this as a suitable explanation as to why three innocent people confessed to the same crime?
1: You know, there are indeed drugs that can erase memories and there are states that you can be put into with drugs that will make you suggestible to false memory implantation. Of course, things like Inception are fictional right. and it's not possible to enter someone else's dreams and implant a memory that way but getting someone drugged and showing them a film like they did in this that is shot in the person's point of view that could have the intended effect of implanting a memory theoretically anyway i don't know of any studies or any treatment protocols or drugs that do this specifically however it is possible theoretically and that is good enough to make it compelling in this tv show or in this episode actually my mom told me about a treatment for ptsd just this week called emdr which is eye movement desensitization And reprocessing, which helps transfer PTSD memories from one side of the brain to the other side of the brain so that the individual can start recognizing the flashbacks as memories and not feel that they are actually there when one is triggered. Theoretically, with drugs or movies slash images, this could be done in reverse to create a feeling that something that was just something they viewed was made to seem like something they experienced, like they did in this episode. So, absolutely, this is a suitable explanation. Why these three innocent people confessed to the same crime? I I was I was in the 100. Okay, I like yeah. it
0: seems like they did their research and thought on that.
1: Yeah, it doesn't have to be something that is actually able to be done currently. It just has to be within the theoretical possibility to make it into this show and be plausible. You know, it's fringe science almost, you know, where something in the show Fringe didn't have to actually be able to be done for them to comment on it. it. Same here in Castle. Something that is theoretical can be used and someone on the fringe of society or fringe of the science society is doing experiments experimental stuff on people you know that would never fly above board
0: but i was glad to see them make the inception connection oh yeah for the people that it went over their heads for again and just because it was cool
1: yeah absolutely
0: i love that movie yeah i do too so i was like yeah okay make the connection. great great uh um, nod there and that might have been where the writer got the idea from anyway yeah I, I bet you're right about that moving on to the other the other portion of the mystery as an actual murderer it turned out to be the struggling actors theater director who we just kind of saw in passing got the opening of the episode Normally I'm an advocate of the murderer getting a little more screen time throughout the episode. But it worked this time around because of the scene where Beckett got a confession out of her. I thought the writer's dialogue and the actress's performance did a good job of getting us to buy into her motivation behind the murder be the destruction of about Nico, did you buy into the theater director being the murderer even though she was given such a short amount of screen time?
1: You know, Dan, in cases like this I'm not bothered by the lack of screen time because for the twist in the mystery to work we need to be thrown off the scent of the killer and for that to work we can't see too much of her lest the twist be spoiled so this was all right with me because it fit into the mystery and storytelling style this week but in other mysteries or other styles it would be disappointing as for her being the murderer who was so obsessed with stopping the emi cult that she was willing to kill to ensure their destruction i did buy that idea we've seen this play out in real life and many other cult-based stories in film and television so i bought into it here as well for sure
0: yeah, same with me. Again, I thought the development they gave her that such a short scene at the end was just really well done and written.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It brought the whole mystery together and yeah, it was just a real quick wrap up sort of thing, but they did it so well that it, yeah. it, it fit it fit the story and this mystery very well.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a great episode, really. Much better second half episodes we're getting this year than last year. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we got that really great 100th episode last year, but after that, it was kind of all over the place. This is much, much better. Yeah,
1: I actually saw a pre-production or a production photo of an upcoming episode that I think is going to be similar to that 100th, which is Castle's. I don't know which birthday it is, but maybe 50th birthday, Uh-oh. something like that, and it's going to be a big deal. So it's going
0: to be it's interesting. Really that old? I don't know. Maybe I don't it's only God.
1: well, Alexis is 20 years old now, so. And it was his second I,
0: wife that he had. I just can't think of Nathan Phillip at all, but sorry.
1: Yeah, so I think it's going to be Castle's 50th. Oh my.
0: All right. Well, wow. Okay. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Finally. I was calling for, for the past couple weeks, a scene with dialogue to finally solidify a family connection being established between Alexis and Beckett. And really, what we got in this episode could have ended up being very cheesy. But I was very satisfied at how they made their chat a part of the progression of Beckett's character with knocking down the emotional walls she built around herself, instead of turning it into something where Beckett was standing in the way of Castle's relationship with Alexis. Nico, did you like how they handled this discussion between Beckett and Alexis, as well as how It ended our night on a good note with a heartwarming moment between father and daughter, topped off with one of Nathan Fillion's satisfying facial reactions.
1: Yep, Dan, this was the perfect way to handle this situation, and I thought the resolution was exactly what you and I were looking for when we discussed it a few episodes ago. We were hoping for Alexis to return and for Castle not to have that told-you-so moment, but rather just accept her back with open arms, and that was exactly what we got, and I loved it. It was perfect.
0: Yeah, kind of Beckett's role in it, which is beautiful.
1: Yeah, it really, them meeting together, and talking it out and and Alexis, you know, telling her no, this is just something between my dad and I and I can't figure out how to do it and Beckett giving her the exact perfect advice. Your dad loves you. He just wants you back. He doesn't care. Just come back and he will accept you open arms. And that's exactly what he did. It shows Beckett knows Castle and yeah. Beckett knows Alexis. Yep. And that's perfect because that means that they're going to be, you know, a good family dynamic.
0: And she understand she understood Castle and Alexis's relationship, right? As well, exactly. Cause I think that comes from her situation with just, it just being her, it just being Becca and her dad. Yep,
1: exactly. And you know, and her observing and Castle sort of using Becca as his confidant, even when they yep. weren't dating, about some of his issues with Alexis growing up and things like that. So it was, you know, it just showed that even when it wasn't her future stepdaughter, that she was still really invested in Alexis's well being.
0: Yeah, I just thought it brought the whole arc together yep, very absolutely. nicely. So with that, we're going to move on to an Almost Human episode. That was also kind of interesting. They kind of went two different directions and kind of left things open with one storyline and kind of resolved things with another. So let's talk now about the Almost Human episode, Beholder.
1: Detective Kennex and Dorian track down the murderer of a chrome who, in his quest for perfection, is tapping into the DNA of his victims by a pinprick on the back of their necks.
0: I thought that a murderer killing people for their DNA to perform plastic surgery on himself, gave us another great mystery that fit right into the imaginative world, created for almost human. Through being what I thought was a futuristic version of the Phantom of the Opera with a twist, which we'll get to in a second. But first, Nico, I've got to ask, what was your thoughts on this concept when it was initially introduced to the episode? Can you see my Phantom of the Opera connection to this mystery? Dan,
1: I do see your Phantom of the Opera connection and I like it. I was thinking something similar and thought the fact that the woman was blind and would not have cared about his defigured face made the story all the more tragic. As for the use of the victim's DNA to do nanite level microplastic surgery, this was exactly the kind of futuristic science fiction based stories that make this series work and are the kind of cases that I want to see week in, week out on this yeah. show. This was yet another great story that fit the setting of this series so well and just more evidence that, like Fringe, this show is getting better as the first season goes along.
0: And really, I feel like the first season is similar to Fringe, where it's establishing stuff. And kind then of once it gets established, everything's going to take off in the next couple seasons. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. If, if it goes that way, I hope I hope so too. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think that's where they're going just be patient people because I think this is going to pay off and I think it's paid off since the beginning of the series. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And with kind of the topic of payoff, I was really kind of hoping this was going to be a stall-centered episode so we could finally get some answers as to why a Chrome like her made the odd choice of becoming a police officer. Uh, for people that are Chromes which are genetically engineered humans, they don't normally this job of a police officer. I'm assuming that they're more doctors and lawyers and things like that. But interesting enough, she picked a police officer. And I thought the episode did a nice job of approaching the subject with the scenes Stahl had in the Chrome Club. But then I thought the writer slightly dropped the ball in favor of giving the murderer development, which was also great stuff. But it's kind of beginning to nag at me that J.H. Wyman has been holding out on such a big part of Stahl's background for so long. Nico, would you have liked this episode to be more of a Stahl-centered episode like it started out to be? Can I you beginning to get annoyed that we don't know why she chose a profession that's odd for a crow?
1: You know, actually, Dan, I'm not. I like the slow burn of this story. That has always been the advantage of a TV series over a movie, is that the format allows you to dive deeper into the characters over a longer time frame, and it doesn't feel like you're getting an information dump. In real life, we don't learn everything about a person in a single meeting. So it makes more sense to do it this slow way where we learn a little bit about each character a little bit at a time. I think if they just gave us everything we want to know about Stahl here, there would be no future intrigue with her story. So I think the slow burn is actually the best method so we don't lose the intrigue. Of course, we want that information and want to know more about her, but if we got it, then it would ultimately not be as good later. So I think like it's good to want that and to continue to feel like, oh, I wish they were giving us more, but that's what keeps us invested in her character and invested in learning about her character and understanding what drove her to become a police officer why does she love it so much why does she get happy catching bad guys what is it that drives her is that some sort of more regular human drive than a chrome human drive is you know those kind of things are things that we can look forward to later that aren't necessarily we wouldn't dive into and wouldn't get as invested in if it was just an information dump early on in the series
0: Okay, now, I mean, the next time it gets brought up, is it okay if we get like a, a clue or something?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Every time they, they touch on something, we need to get forward progression. If we just stay level, that's yeah. when it gets really frustrating and is not good storytelling. Things need to continue to progress, but going slow and maybe not focusing even on it next week is okay. But the yeah. next time it gets brought up or they deal with a Chrome, there needs to be f- further development on her story.
0: Yeah, it's just i um, seeing these previous, then it's the season finale next week. It's like, oh, should they have said something now? Because they're out of time, you know. I mean, is this something okay that can wait till a second season? I think so. Okay, because it's, it's going to leave people interested to come back to want the answer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and Yeah, absolutely. As for the great development of the murder character, I just mentioned, I thought it was brilliant the writer chose to have his motivation behind repairing his face come from the guy just being a perfectionist, rather than going with the trope of trying to recover from some accident. Because in my opinion, it made the twist of the girl he was trying to improve his image for being blind come off perfectly, in a way that left me surprised satisfied with the impressiveness of the twist. Uh, Nico. what did you think of the motivation behind the murderer's actions, the kind of twist that ended up coming along with
1: it? Dan, I thought the fact that she was blind and would not have cared about his disfigured, yeah. disfigured face made the story all the more tragic. Of course the murderer had his own hang ups about being disfigured by the experimental treatment that drove him to kill those people as well but the fact that the woman he loved could not see his disfigurement still made it a tragedy, just absolute tragedy.
0: God, the way they shot that when he jumped off the building. God the last image he saw was her standing in the apartment. Yep. That was just oh very well done but heartbreaking.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And you could tell by Kennex's reaction the whole thing. He put it all together and was just like, oh man, that sticks. And it really rattled him as well.
1: Yeah, I think it finally sort of kicked him into gear to try and start something with Stahl as well.
0: Yeah. And that's when these things really work, when it gets the main character going. Yep. Or on that quest to better themselves or better their life. And moving to that talk about Kennex moving on or trying to get things going with Stahl, it seemed like it was, there was more significance to it than just cause causing romantic tension. Guys, It put him smack dab in what I feel like is a civil rights war between humans, Chromes, and synthetics, which may force John to make some tough decisions in the future, kind of loyalty towards Dorian and Stahl. In fact, and this is kind of a crack butt theory, it might be even possible that these loyalties could cause Kennex to turn one or all three of these groups against each other. Nico, do you think Kennex's feelings towards Stahl could cause friction between humans and Cro? in the same way that his partnership with Dorian could create friction between the humans and You know,
1: yeah, it may cause some friction or cause some people to turn heads, but as I've mentioned many times before, I really don't want to see a race or species war between the Chromes and humans or humans and synthetics. I think it's fine to play with the prejudice and racism inherent in this sort of story, but a full-out race war is not something I care to see on this show. I think seeing Chromes shun stall for dating a human would be interesting, but I don't see it erupting into a full-on battle between the two classes. I think the synthetic issue is more likely Where that sort of story might come from if and when the MXs turn against the police, assuming that happens, which is what we've been saying we think is going to happen, and that Dorian may get lumped into the us against them sort of battle as a synthetic. So if Stahl and Kennex get together, then I imagine they may be treated like mixed race couples were in the 70s, you know, pretty much poorly.
0: Yeah, and I'm not foreseeing a war. I've seen war foreseeing civil rights issues. Yeah, and and
1: just playing with the prejudices is a lot more effective, I think, than seeing a race war or something of that erupt. I think where it's it's on a more personal level, like the Kennex or Stahl being discriminated against for associating with someone of another class or another race or another, you know, whatever category you want to to put them in, then that makes it much more applicable to our daily life.
0: Yeah, this isn't going to turn into uh, the tomorrow people or anything like that. Right. I'm not foreseeing that at all. But I think the prejudice the civil rights issues will be addressed. Okay. Yeah. Got The MX thing, I don't see that as a race war. I see that as technology getting out of hand.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it, it will bring up some of the same sort of right. prejudices against all synthetics when the MX is turned.
0: Yeah, but I think that's going to be more of like a reaction to the way we in the U.S. reacted to Muslims after September 11th.
1: Or to the Japanese yes, Americans after Pearl Harbor. Absolutely.
0: Right, th- that kind of example when go with. So that's what I'm seeing is the MX thing will be seen as like a terrorist attack or okay. bombing. Pearl Harbor kind of Page. Sure, because they'd go from there, yeah. Because that avoids the race war thing. I, I, I hope don't so. Get yeah, too much into that. Yeah. Good. With my last point here, is really the season finale here already. I thought it was early for the finale, and so Nico. I mean, is this a sign of cancellation, or were there only thirteen episodes planned?
1: No, this show I believe was only originally planned for thirteen episodes. And with that said, the numbers have not been great. So I, you know, we love this show, but I'm not sure that they're good enough to get a. season Season two, So it may actually come down to whether the new stuff in pilot season now is better than this on whether this gets renewed. If they find something that they think they can fill the slot with, this will get axed. I, uh, I, I, I don't think 13 is because it wasn't doing well. I think 13 was planned, but it also it's real early in the season to, to go off. You know, I know Sleepy Hollow has been off since Christmas, but that, that show that show exploded. <laughs> exactly. So
0: I I don't know. Okay, I, we got the Batman show. The Gotham yeah, the ba- show.
1: Gotham's coming next year. I, I just don't know if there's going to be room on the, the plate. Yeah. And it's going to be a November start again because of baseball probably. So I just don't know.
0: Which is unfortunate, unfortunate for J.H. Weiland.
1: Well, I mean, he dealt with it every year with Fringe. I know, so he's, he's like, used to this sort of thing. And he he's knows how to... Toilet. Knows how to keep his show alive if, if he can. So I think if anyone is in, in, yeah. is primed for this sort of situation, it's him.
0: I just don't know if you got the fan following this wall.
1: Yeah. You know, I just don't know. I loved Fringe. I really like this show. I just don't know if it's going to get the same opportunity Fringe did and get a second season.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel it. Well, we'll see. Stranger things have happened with Fox. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is the truth. They are as crazy, if not used to be crazier than NBC. So who knows?
0: Well, NBC is takes the cake up crazy.
1: Well, NBC's NBC's just stupid. <laughs> Fox is crazy.
0: Go i was shocked to see Hannibal's back.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I haven't. We haven't gotten a chance. There's so much TV on right now, and so many yeah. things we're watching. We are pushing Hannibal probably to, to hiatus time. We just we just can't watch another hour long series. You know, it, yeah. It's good. so good. But we watched it last summer. We had recorded them all and then watched them last summer. So I think we're going to do the same thing again this year.
0: Well, we're going to move on to another show that's kind of dead man walking. <laughs> Probably. But also one that I'm enjoying, but I think a lot of people don't have room for it. They don't have another, like you said with Hannibal, they don't have room to put another hour-long show on their plate. Yep. Especially when there's two already pretty solid ones on Monday night in the, ta- in the same time slot. But anyway, we're going to talk now about an intelligence episode that I enjoyed called Delta Force.
1: Gabriel has difficulty believing that his best friend from Delta Force is now the main suspect behind an assassination plot against a presidential candidate in Bolivia.
0: Last week's episode of Intelligence did a great job of presenting us with a villain that messed with every aspect of Gabriel's technological side. Now this week's episode did a great job of having Gabriel face what we originally thought to be a villain who was going to mess with his human side, because his best friend from Delta Force, John Norris. Nico, what did you think of this episode having Gabriel face off against his best friend? Was this a worthy threat to the character?
1: Yeah, Dan. I actually do think that this was a credible threat to his human side, while last week was a technological threat. This was a good way of getting the human side balanced, especially since we talked so much last week about his feelings of being turned into just a machine. So I thought it was a good time to see him battle his emotions and humanity this week. It was, I think it was perfectly placed.
0: And the show with their episode placement has done a very good job of transitioning between the two in my book.
1: Yeah, and if now, if they could just get the U.S. threats and overseas threats, you know, kind of back and forth with those and not too many times with the U.S. threats being the bad guys, I think it would be, you know, pretty much perfectly placed.
0: I thought this was a good combination between the two. Yeah this episode was.
1: Yeah, this one walked that line very well and made it so that we assumed, because of past experience, that the American, former American Special Forces was going to be a bad guy.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay, these types of situations that happened here with the John Norris... I I could see it happening in real life. You know, oh, yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. A guy who gets addicted to combat going and right. becoming a mercenary, absolutely.
0: Well, and even the, the the other guy with the CIA hiring John Norris as a mercenary, kind of under the table. Yep. I could see that stuff going on, too. But what really sold me on the conflict between the two friends occurring in present day were the flashbacks that we had in some sense. Because I thought it was interesting to see the days before Gabriel had the chip in his head and see Norris go crazy in Afghanistan left me totally open to the twist of the presidential candidate's wife being the actual villain of the episode. And Norris being hired by the CIA as a part of a ghost op. Nico, what were your thoughts on the flashbacks? Uh, were they a big help of conveying the story the writer wanted to tell, especially concerning the friendship between Gabriel and Norris?
1: Yeah, the flashbacks were pretty good, and they set up the present story by letting us understand where Gabriel was mentally with regard to his former best friend. Essentially, we saw that friendship devolve in the flashbacks as Norris lost his humanity and became addicted to killing. So we kind of went along for the ride with Gabriel as he tried to process this idea that maybe his best friend was now immersed. Scenario and a, a contract killer. So I thought they did a good job of setting us in that sort of mindset right. or the frame of mind that Gabriel was in.
0: Yeah, the only thing with that is I thought the flashbacks had a slight little problem of not giving us a solid explanation as to how Gabriel and Norris got out of their situation got Afghanistan alive. But on the other hand, they did kind of fulfill their part regarding the story. And maybe I felt that they were saving the rest of what happened in Afghanistan for an episode where maybe Norris returns. Nico, did you think this episode needed to finish up the story Be told of the flashbacks? Or you know, was it good the way it was?
1: I don't think it needed it. The flashbacks served their purpose and we didn't really need to see the ending or how they got back from that mission. Essentially, Gabriel sort of told Riley that they got out and the last time he saw Norris was when Gabriel got medevaced out of there to the hospital and then went stateside. So, we didn't really need to see it because there wasn't anything really to see. Essentially, yeah. once, once the threat in that home, that Afghani home was alleviated they were able to get behind the patrol the patrol moved on and then they were able to exfiltrate themselves out of there and get back to base and so there wasn't really anything that we needed to see in that other than we saw the important part and that was the uh, devolving of the friendship and Norris sort of losing his humanity as I said Right, And so I think we saw everything we needed to see out of that.
0: Right. But the question is, is is it still lost with him?
1: That's where the ending comes into question. We don't know exactly where Norris is. He does seem to enjoy the killing part, and he... Probably as he's probably willing to kill whoever is his right. objective, but I think that he does still take orders and he is still a soldier. So he's not so far gone that he's yeah. like a Slade Wilson sort of character from uh, Arrow era or 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 just DC in general.
0: He's not crazy. He enjoys yeah. the killing, but he has some morality. He still seems pro America. Yeah, <laughs>
1: he's definitely still got the the military hierarchy. He'll yeah. take orders orders he follows orders but he enjoys the fact that he gets to kill people
0: right exactly
1: and not just that he gets to kill bad people he gets to kill people you know whoever it's told to kill so there is some you know messed up morality in that that he only kills people he's ordered to kill but he enjoys the actual killing
0: they bring the character back there's a lot to play with regarding that debate as well yeah
1: absolutely i think so
0: so that was smart yeah guys for another question i've got for you on this episode or this topic is were you happy with the presidential candidate's wife being the villain Can Norris ending up as Gabriel's ally or would you rather see Norris just remain as the bad guy?
1: You know, I felt like the wife being the bad guy was so obvious that you could tell it from her from almost the first time we met her. She was yeah. acting all shifty, and when they mentioned her being a teacher as part of the vetting process for the candidate being sort of a moderate and safe bet, they all but screamed that she'd be the reason he was dangerous. On the other hand, it could have been interesting to see Norris remain the bad guy, but I was sort of okay with him actually being on the same side as Gabriel in the end. Let's just say that the ending of this episode wasn't all that great, and it wouldn't have been any better if Gabriel just caught up to Norris and killed him either, so I guess this was the best ending we could have hoped for with this story. So, you know, it, it wasn't the best episode out there. It was it was pretty good, but like because the, the wife was kind of obvious, I just felt like this was the better way to go with... Norris being still a good guy.
0: Yeah, I, I think Norris being the good guy, or turning out to be the good guy, made it a little more interesting than it would have been if they went the other way.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know what, now, I I agree with that, definitely. The
0: wife was obvious, I mean, don't get me wrong on that, but normally they would have just had everybody be the bad guy. Sure. That would have been the boring way to go. So I'm glad it ended in a different place, because normally when you get this story where, because the main character's best friend, and they go crazy and they come back, that normally means they have to kill them or that person ends up being a bad guy. Yeah. So I'm glad they tried to do something different. Even though there were, there were some other obvious things that occurred in this episode. But speaking of Norris revealing his true colors, I thought that the maneuver game really to make a digital x-ray of the minefield he led Norris into was pretty awesome. I had pretty much said that Minesweeper might be the favorite computer game in this show's writer's group. Nico, what did you think of this cool trick?
1: Actually, Dan, I wasn't all that impressed by the visuals involved with this special effect this week. I, I liked felt the like the
0: concept, not the visuals. Okay.
1: <laughs> I, I felt like like the actor let the special effects team down by making way too big of movements when yeah. taking one step left and he steps like a yard and a half to the left it just made the whole scene look hokey and made it so the effects had to have the bomb space ridiculously far apart to account for bad acting or maybe it was bad direction in this scene let me just say it could have been done so much better you're right the idea of like a minesweeper is kind of cool but the execution here was was shoddy
0: okay okay that's what happened happens when you chose going down the tubes <laughs> <laughs>
1: well that's just my opinion i mean anybody could think this was great and i'm an idiot but in my opinion it just it wasn't up to snuff they they do so many great visual effects especially with the cyber render yes that this just didn't seem as good. out you know as good yeah i don't know just one man's opinion <laughs>
0: And even though they interacted very briefly, though, going on to another topic, I was quite amused by Riley's back and forth banter with Norris. I know it wasn't long, but I kind of want to see an episode where he comes back to team up with Gabriel and Riley. In addition, I think the difference in philosophies that Norris has with Gabriel and Riley will help give them an understanding of some of the frustration Lillian has to deal with in regards to the difference between her tactics with running Cybercom and Lance Riddick's character running the CIA. Nico, do you think that we'll be seeing Norris again?
1: You know, I I don't think we will. The the only way I see them running into Norris again is if he does actually go rogue and they have to actually go in and try to stop him. I I say this because if Cybercom sees Norris come up on a mission, they'll know that it's a sanctioned CIA mission and won't get involved. Now, the CIA and Norris could come to Cybercom and request Gabriel's help on a mission, which I think is what you were suggesting. But to do that, they would need to read Norris in on Gabriel's abilities. And I just don't see that as likely happening because they were so adamant about not telling him in this episode. It could happen, but I just don't see it at this
0: point. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. Okay. Yeah, and again, we might not have any character come back <laughs> right. on the show better Other Rates, Kelly. Right. But I'm still enjoying the show. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. I like watching it. It might not be the greatest at times, but it, it covers its time slot good. So, with that, why don't we move on to the exciting return of Supernatural with the episode Captives? <laughs>
1: While Castiel falls into the hands of Bartholomew and his faction of angels, Sam and Dean make a startling discovery about the Men of Letters bunker and a special captive that Abaddon's demons are holding.
0: After two episodes in a row of Pointless Filler, this episode of Supernatural actually went somewhere, with the big surprise of the Men of Letters bunker being haunted by none other than Kevin Tran, revealing that Crowley did keep his mother alive. However, that's not all Kevin told the witches, because he explained that he's a ghost because humans are no longer able to pass into heaven due to Metatron's spell. God, I like this as it gives humans a stake in this war between factions of angels and demons, rather than it just being the brothers cleaning up a mess that they caused. Nico, what's your thoughts on Kevin reappearing as a ghost? Kind the concept of humans being knocked out of heaven.
1: Yeah, Dan, I agree. I like this too because it gives Sam and Dean more motivation to stop Metatron than just revenge or cleaning up their own mess. As you said, it, it, it gives them and all humans a stake in the outcome of the war between angels and Metatron and demons. Also, Kevin as a ghost was pretty great as well.
0: Kwan well, also says that when you're dead on supernatural, that doesn't necessarily mean you're off the show. Right. Can okay, I thought i let us say goodbye to Kevin? Yeah, definitely. I mean we got closure with that character, which was good. I mean the death was very shocking and it needed to be, but this is nice that we kinda of got a prelude to it as well. And I think that was good for a lot of fans of the character. Because I did think he gained fans. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And with seeing Kevin again, the brothers of course wanted you right on his part. I took off to save Kevin's mom. Who I was really surprised to see still alive. But I think the heart-wrenching scene where Sam had to tell her Kevin was dead was necessary in the progression of the brothers working out their differences. Even though I think Dean should have been set up as the one to tell her, since it essentially was his fault. Nico, were you surprised to see Kevin's mom still alive? Do you think Dean should have been the one to tell her about Kevin?
1: Yeah, I was surprised to see Mrs. Tran still alive, but Crowley did say she was alive, and since then I have had it in the back of my mind that it was possibly, probably true. Yeah. Crowley likes to mess with people, But at the same time, he had no reason to lie to Kevin at that point. So I thought it was at least a 70-30 split that yeah. she was alive. As for who should have told Mrs. Tran, I actually liked that it was Sam because it was his possessed body that did actually kill him and that had some poetic element to it that it was Sam to tell her. I, you know, it would have been okay if it was Dean. I actually preferred Sam this time. I also liked that Sam was able to apologize to Kevin and that Kevin forgave him because he knows it wasn't actually Sam that killed him. It was Ezekiel right. or actually, uh, what's his name now
0: gadriel right gadriel
1: yeah and so yeah so kevin kevin understood and forgave him so it kind of you know did a little bit to ease sam's guilt over what happened and maybe and maybe a little bit of dean's guilt as well in the same process
0: yeah but it was more focused stuff so i felt more focused on sam's guilt over it than dean's yeah yeah and I don't know if it should have been the opposite.
1: Well, it definitely wasn't wrong that they were focusing on Sam's guilt with it. Yeah. But maybe a little bit more focus on Dean would have would have been
0: welcome. Maybe that's coming. That's definitely a possibility, right? Right, exactly. Because we know that there's still some working out. Now moving on to Cass, he got his own story this week, continuing with the great character development we've thought he's got all of the season through the angel coming face to face with Bartholomew, who revealed himself as basically a product of Cass's mistakes as the leader of heaven back in season six. Now with this, I liked how Cass used feeling responsible for Bartholomew's philosophies as fuel to overcome his own temptation of power could ultimately defeat him in battle after giving the deluded angel a chance to walk away. Nico, did you like how they handled that resolved Cass's confrontation with Bartholomew? Yep, Dan, I don't think I could
1: have had it go any other way. This was excellent in exactly the way the new cast would handle things. Very well done. I like that he gave him a chance to walk away and when Bartholomew attacked him, he used a jujutsu like move and used Bartholomew's own momentum to kill him. You know, using your own opponent's movement or momentum against them is exactly the kind of jujitsu sort of stuff you'd expect, you know. Rex so on, I think Rex exactly. I think it was perfect because Cass didn't want to didn't want a confrontation. He right. wanted to just walk out and say, "I'm done with this. I don't want to be a part of it." don't make me be a part of this. And Bartholomew tried to sucker punch him or, you know, kill him from behind, stab him in the back. And Cass made the move and used his own momentum to force him, you know, essentially kill him with his own weapon. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we expect from Cass to be a warrior, but only when needed, you know. And so I I liked it.
0: And he gained respect out of doing that too. Yeah,
1: definitely people, other angels saw the right way to do things or what they, uh, they see as the right way to do things and that they don't... Don't have to do, they don't have to join one of these people that they don't respect out of fear. Yeah. That they could do the right thing and be the right kind of angel. And that's kind of cool.
0: I'm just glad we're getting consistency with Kaz's
1: character. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, they're just realizing, okay, we developed this character not by doing crazy, screwy things with him. We just, you know, put him through some tragedy and hardship. And that's how you develop it and make it better. That's the way to do it. It's a natural way. Instead of making him go loony to it. But they're justifying it a little bit better now, too. I mean, it, uh, Jeremy Carver's coming to clean up a lot of those buses, which is great stuff. And in addition to a personal victory, as I kind of mentioned before, we also saw Cass gain his own following of angels. Which better not get killed off, like every other angelic ally, that's come Cass's way this season, because... I would really like to see the character get a chance to lead. We've heard about Cass being a leader off-screen, but we've kind of not really seen it, but I'm kind of interested to see it, especially now that he's evolved into what I would say is a good leader. Nico, do you think Cass' new angel faction will stick around for a while Can develop as a part of his progression towards becoming a good leader of heaven, as opposed to what he was in Season 6?
1: Yeah, I would imagine that it has to at this point, right? You're correct that we have heard of the mighty Castiel and his leadership of the past, but we've not seen it on the actual show. It would be nice to see him grow his faction, and they sound a lot like the kind of angels I was talking about that lived a lifetime on Earth, working with and living as a human as part of their training to become angels that help humans and run the day-to-day of heaven. It would be nice to see those sort of angels finally on the show, and if that's the kind of angel that we're going to get on this faction, then I definitely want to see it grow.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely with you on that, I think. It's the next stage in his development we've seen him kind of reach his low now we realize he knows what leader he needs to be the next thing is actually see him lead yep God, i hope that inspires the winchesters to also realize they need to be leaders in their own right with hunters and starting a new man of letters so it'd be interesting to see cast not only second step for other angels before, but for the winchesters and other hunters as well so let's see if that's where they're going and in wrapping up our discussion i appreciated how kevin told the winchester that they're current falling out is stupid because that's really what we've been thinking for weeks but did it do any good not really as kevin and his mom leaving the bunker was met with sam storming off to his room all ticked off leaving me extremely frustrated that kevin's words didn't put an end to a very unclear kind of annoying argument between the winchesters Nico, do you think they should have resolved the current conflict between sam and dean with the pep talk kevin gave them before leaving
1: yeah that seems like as good a thing as any to snap the brothers out of this stupid argument. Or- situation they find themselves in now I'm not sure what is going on with this story but I do hope it is resolved soon I don't understand it and that makes me leery of it you know
0: right I thought Kevin's saying, this is dumb, get out of it. I mean, it's going to be, it's over. Oh,
1: that's the, the exact feeling of everybody in the, the fan base of this entire situation. So it was the fans voicing themselves through Kevin. Yeah. And it, I thought it was sort of a misstep to not take heed of that.
0: Right. I mean, I thought it was the writers realizing, okay, we get it. We're done. We're not going to do this anymore. And then that didn't happen. So, I hope it's, like, next week. Well, I can't do it next week, because next week's going to be more of an off-the-wall episode. Uh, so, we'll see what happens to maybe will be the week after that.
1: Let's hope so, right?
0: Because it's the Ghost Facers next week. Oh,
1: I love those guys. So, they're back.
0: <laughs> so, I'm excited about that. That's going to be a fun episode. Yeah. So, that's something exciting you guys can look forward to. All right. So, you ready to move on to an episode of Person of Interest? I am. That just left everyone on the edge of their seat. This was an intense one. Let's get into the summary of the Person of Interest episode. Last Call. <laughs>
1: The machine gives the team the number of a 911 operator and Finch goes undercover as a fellow operator to help her
0: normally, and this isn't a bad thing, person of interest takes a while to build up its intensity. But this episode hit the ground running with this week's number, the most level-headed 911 operator in the room, being taken hostage over the phone by a mercenary trying to cover up the murder. And I thought the writer, as well as the actress who played the 911 operator, did a nice job of conveying the danger she was in, justifying her decisions, and giving us a reason to see her get rescued through the backstory that was given to the character as a child. Nico, did you like this concept of a 911 operator being a person of interest? I did it set up an intense episode that left you on the edge of your seat?
1: Yes, to liking the concept of the 911 operator being the person of interest, but no to the edge of my seat.
0: Don't get me wrong, I
1: liked this episode, but I was not on the edge of my seat with suspense. I thought the way they handled the 911 operator's story was great. Her backstory, being about being responsible for the death of a child, she was babysitting, was compelling and gave us insight into why she would do anything to keep this kid safe, even covering up another murder. But at no time did I think that the kid would actually be killed. And at no time did I think that Reese and Finch would not succeed in helping this woman. Thus, the suspense was only in how that would happen. And I just wasn't as hooked as maybe other weeks I have been. And I'm not exactly sure why that was. I can't point to anything that they did that was different or any aspect that I didn't like. It just didn't capture my attention or my interest maybe as much as other persons have.
0: Yeah. You know, this is the thing with this episode for me. I knew everyone would come out okay but it was the franticness of the episode like the speed and everything that was going around okay that kept me enthralled and that's I mean I, I knew what was gonna happen but I just thought I don't, it went by fast for me I guess okay you know it felt like a good quick easy watch
1: yeah I, I don't as I said I don't have anything I can point to that made it any different than any other of the episodes that I've loved in the past this one just for whatever reason didn't capture my attention yeah. and I hey I mean every episode doesn't speak to every person the Right. Same way, and so me not being hooked on this week's does not make it any less intense right. or, or or spellbinding for other people. It, it just didn't do it for me this week, and, and I just wanted to mention that.
0: Well, hopefully they get get you a good one next week.
1: Though. I, <laughs> I feel bad. I I
0: don't doubt that
1: they do. I this one probably should have been. Maybe I just wasn't in the <laughs> right frame of mind while watching it. I don't know what was going
0: on. Uh, what sporting <laughs> event was on beforehand? I yeah, I don't know. No, well, this wasn't the night of the Hawks-Rangers games. It wasn't bad. Nope. Okay, well, anyway, got a much slower note regarding this episode. I really liked what they're doing with Fusco and his precinct by establishing him as the leader hero that Carter once was because I really think some of the best stories come from characters succeeding in a place they don't want to be. And I think we saw some of that potential here with Fusco acting as a mentor to a rookie detective. Nico, do you like what they're doing here with Fusco post-HR?
1: Yes, I do. I think making Fusco the mentor cop that Carter was and would have been was exactly what they should do with Fusco. It is his reward for getting Simmons, but in reality, it it is his proof to himself that he is now clean again and a reminder that he needs to remain that way because not only is he responsible and beholden to himself but also his memory of Carter and the kind of cop she would have been. I like that and I like the idea that they're sort of putting that out there with the Fusco character.
0: I think there's going to be a lot of great stories and a lot of great cop for him that's going to come out of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely because there's going to be times where he's going to have to make a a moral judgment on whether what he does to help the person of interest team, which is technically sort of dirty, might go against who the the cop he is now is and there's going to be some internal conflict there but then also he's going to know the importance of the job that they're doing and is he able to and willing to do that even if it means going against the sort of good cop he wants to be it's going to be really interesting
0: i think it's going to make a good character better oh yeah absolutely good again i didn't feel like he had a whole lot to do in the first half of season three. But now this solves that problem perfectly. It's just sad that Carter had to go to get us to that point. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) absolutely. All right. Well, with that being said, Person of Interest is a show that I consider to be flawless. But there's a slight issue that's beginning to emerge, which is the writers kind of feeling the need to always connect what's going on with the police characters to the Person of Interest team's missions. In my opinion, the writers have tended to kind of fall upon this much a lot this season. And I don't really feel they always need to because all the characters have been developed to a point where they could have their own separate stories. Nika, what's your thoughts on this observation that I'm having? Is it a valid concern? of course it's a
1: valid concern, but I don't think it was wrong to have this case connect the way it did. In fact, this case probably made a lot of sense to connect since it was the unsolved murder that Fusco was investigating that ultimately was the murder that was trying to be covered up by the 911 heist. That connection made the 911 case more relevant in my opinion. So in this case, I actually liked it that, that they connected, but I agree that this device has been overused this season and could become an issue that could potentially take us out of the story later on when they use it too much or make us feel that things are less realistic. But so far, I think it has been all right. But we are getting close to it being overused,
0: as you were as you were mentioning. Okay, so I'm not the only one picking up on that.
1: No, you're definitely on par there. And I think it's a very valid concern.
0: Okay, good. I'm glad that was something that I'm not being overly or crazy worried about. Helps my sanity. Right. And really, in the end, there was quite a bit that went into making this a quality episode. I thought there was Edge of Your seat intensity. We both thought there was solid character development. Got pretty much a satisfying conclusion. But really the most important thing to take away from this episode is the addition of another member to the person of interest, Rogue's Gallery of Villains. Can I ask for my thoughts on who the mysterious voice on the phone that terrorized the 911 operator belongs to? Well, I think it's someone that Finch may know, based on him not wanting to tell recent Sean what's going on. I've also got another piece of evidence to back this theory up, but I think that should wait until our next podcast, because it has to do with next week's Person of Interest episode, and I think it might ruin some things for people, so I'm not going to go there. However, I will say that it's very possible this voice on the phone could become the surrogate for Samaritan, like how Root acts as a surrogate for the machine. Nico, what's your thoughts on my crackpot theories? Do you have any of your own regarding the mysterious voice on the phone?
1: You know, Dan, I almost think that this adding new bad guys to the Rogues Gallery is maybe almost becoming a crutch of the show's on its own. Well, when they don't use them enough, and we go almost a half season without any word from them, By that's Julian where I Sands think. Julian character, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just hope that that doesn't happen once again with this new guy that they introduced. Now, as for your theory, what I know of it, I like so far. Maybe next week we shall get a better sense of whether or not he is the root character to Samaritan, or if he is rather, as I suspect, the Finch character to Samaritan that Greer put in charge of running the operations using Samaritan. If you think about it, he was the mastermind behind the attack on the 911 operator, hacked into the 911 call center, monitored every move with a camera on her headset, and coordinated the multiple teams that pulled off the attack. That sounds much more like Finch to me than Root. But I guess, you know, we'll have to see in the weeks to come if it's more Root, more Finch, or maybe a combination of the two.
0: I'd hate to see this guy, I'd hate to see Greer's version of recent Shaw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's kind of scary. Good evil version of Shaw is frightening. That's so oh, like uh,
1: A good version of Shaw is frightening.
0: That's <laughs> <Class> true too. <laughs> I really like how they have fun with that yeah. got the show. It's good, good stuff.
1: I think she has been the best addition to this show since the start. You know? Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Just a brilliant character.
1: Yeah. It was really great when they brought her in in that first episode that we saw everything from her perspective. And then when they brought her in full time to be a member this season, I really oh, yeah. enjoyed that.
0: I agree. All right. Well, with that, are we going to move on to a more of a funny show? I think it's about time. Yeah, all right. Go. Well, let's move into more of a humorous show that really had a solid comeback episode from Hiatus since the last episode left us really worried. So let's get into the Psych episode, 1967, The Psych Odyssey. Psych you out in the end.
1: Lassiter is determined to be appointed chief of police, so he sets out to prove himself worthy of the job by solving the murder of the mayor's beloved uncle, Archie Baxter, who was killed back in the 60s, but the case was never solved. Meanwhile, Juliet receives some news that tests her relationship with Sean.
0: After the previous episode of Psych being somewhat of a disaster, this episode was much better. As Trout being gone, Lassie being detective again, got no mention of Gus's dislikable new girlfriend made things feel back to normal on this show until Chief Vic returned to drop the bombshell on us that she's leaving to take a job in San Francisco, sending Lassie on a mission to become Santa Barbara's new chief police. Okay, and if you're a Lassiter fan like we are here at Across the Airwaves, this episode was a satisfying step forward in the development of the character. Called like the episode where Lassiter found out he was going to be a father because through this story of becoming Chief, he remained the curmudgeonly hard-boiled cop that we've grown to enjoy throughout this series. Instead of being reduced to a scaredy cat shadow of himself. Nico, what was your thoughts on this episode, sending Lasseter on a mission to become chief of police? Was this the direction you wanted to see the character go?
1: Absolutely, it's the direction I wanted to see Lasseter go. I thought it was great. It really was the evolution of where we should see Lasseter go. And I love the method they used to solve the case with each present-day character also playing a back-in-the-day character as well in this episode. I thought that was a really successful way of telling this story and really just brilliant. It made it a lot of fun where we, we weren't really excited about last the last episode we saw before the Olympic hiatus.
0: For sure. last Lassie's character was much better on this episode than his previous episode where he was the main focus with the baby, definitely.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And, I mean... On second viewing of that episode with Lassiter and the baby, it was it was more fun. But that's because we knew where things were going. It, in the moment, I was really disappointed with that episode. This one, not ever was I disappointed. This was yeah. a great character study of Lassiter.
0: Yeah. God really adds for the cold case. Lassiter and team psych had to solve to make Old Sourpuss, Chief of Police, I thought it was a pretty clever mystery that really had its fun with Sykes cast playing the roles of the murder suspects back in 1967, especially in regards to my favorite comedic moments from the episode, which were Dooley Hill performing like he was James Brown and James Rone acting as a gangster, This seemed to be more like something out of the 1980s version of Scarface rather than 1967. Nico, what were your thoughts on the mystery this week? Was it suitable for being what may be the final case Team like solve together. Also, what was your favorite comedic moment from the episode?
1: Yeah, Dan, this mystery was great this week. I love the way they incorporated the back and forth between the 1967 and present to move the mystery and plot forward. My favorite instance of this was when they had the camera spinning around Timothy Omenson mm-hmm. and changing back and forth from Lassiter to Archie Baxter. Really, Kirsten Nelson did a great job in her directorial debut to tell a yes. very interesting story with a great mystery. As for my favorite comedic moments, come on, son. You know there's never just one. Okay. Lassiter's interview was great. Him in the mayor's office. Yes. That was great. Dooley Hill singing as the <laughs> James Brown or Jackie Wilson, like Miles Valour. Awesome. Which is, that's not comedy. That's just awesomeness.
0: <laughs> yes, it was.
1: Woody's autopsy where he thought he was the only one who could, who couldn't see the body. Oh, I love that. Yes. <laughs> Gus with the friar. Suck
0: it.
1: <laughs> and don't forget, never underestimate Sean's caboose.
0: Also, uh, the flashback with Sean's dad
1: as the medical examiner. Uh, yes, yes. With all the hair, yes. I liked, I liked it. They chose to do. Sean's dad as the medical examiner and Woody as the chief of police it kind of threw th- you know a little mystery in there or a little uh twist of fate
0: and uh was that a uh, not Harold Ramis there because Kurt Fuller looked a little bit like his character in Ghostbusters 2 when he was dressed up as the chief well I mean
1: this was all shot months <laughs> and know. months ago but
0: <laughs> sure why not <laughs> yeah we'll throw that one Harold. that's our theme this week so we'll, we'll, we'll give that to him sure yes and in the last 10 minutes of this episode it really went from funny to serious as Lassiter couldn't accept becoming the chief and uh, Juliet couldn't be his lead detective giving us really a wonderful scene a beautifully directed scene brought this Nelson again that wrapped up Lassiter's character development and gave a great ending to the story of Lasseter's partnership especially if this is going to be the last if this is the last conversation they have individually uh, Nico what were your thoughts on this excellent wrap up the partnership between Juliet if it is the wrap up
1: we've seen these two become not only partners but best friends Friends through this series, and we've never seen Lassiter show any emotion towards Jules other than maybe approval. But in this scene, he all but said that he loved her, and that she was more than his partner; she was his confidant. This was handled so well, and only as James Rodet writing and Kirsten Nelson directing could have done this. Excellent final scene with these two, until the finale episode. We do know that everybody's going to be back in the finale episode, so that's going to be good.
0: They'd have to be, but that might just be the team. They might not have an individual scene, like this one again.
1: No, I think this may have been their their swan song.
0: Yeah, great scene, just... Great stuff. And, and I fought a lot back on those times where Juliet was there for Lassador. Especially in those low points where, remember, he was trying to find a date, got had some romance issues. Yeah. She was really there for him through a lot of those moments. And so that made me think fondly back on their partnership and really fueled the scene nicely. But with things between Lassiter and Juliet being left on a high note, things were left on a low point for Sean, as Juliet decided to solve Lassiter's dilemma by taking a job as Chief fix lead detective in San Francisco, with her wanting Sean to come along. But that kind of leaves one question. What's Sean going to do about Gus? And if Sean leaves, who's going to use his credit cards? In my opinion, focusing on the bromance that acts as the heart and soul of Psych is the way to go for a final season. Especially since we have to say goodbye to it. But Nico, what do you think needs to be done to get Gus to a place where Sean can leave him? Because this current girlfriend Gus has got isn't going to cut it. God, Does something big or dramatic need to happen for Sean to reach the level of maturity where he decides to go after Juliet?
1: We all know Henry will be okay because he's got a TV. Yes. But Gus needs to be settled before we can buy Sean leaving him and heading up north to San Francisco. We only have four episodes left and that means they don't have much time for a new girl to come into Gus his life. This means one of two things can happen. One, this new private eye girlfriend is it.
0: Suck or, it. No. Two, Rachel oh. from
1: last season needs to re-enter the picture. Thank you. I'm not sure either really ends the story for Gus where I want it to be, but I think I would actually prefer Rachel to return despite how badly she treated him in the end. You know, she was kind of his one, it seemed like, when things were going good, and then she got another show and they ended things pretty yeah. abruptly. But once things with Gus are settled, I think whatever happens in the finale episode is going to be what finally gets Sean to, to the point where he's ready to commit and asks Juliet to marry him. That's where I see the finale go. That uh, That is my guess but the f- finale does have an ominous name so who knows what could happen. Although I suspect it could be referring to the bromance but we shall see in four episodes
0: there's also that replacement for jewels that's coming in as well.
1: Right, in the next episode, I assume.
0: And we had some theories about where that would go for Gus. So that's still on the table as well, maybe. Maybe, but
1: it seems like so, you know, four episodes so fast. And, yeah. I mean, it is Gus. He, he does move fast.
0: <laughs> is it just four? Yeah, ten right.
1: episodes is total, and this is
0: six. Okay, all right. Well, with that, we're going to move on to another show. I don't know where it's what its status is. It says it's that man walking, according to some... Resources. I'm enjoying it, and the way it turned around at the end of episode could make it pretty darn good, where I might want more. Yeah. But uh, we'll talk now about the Revolution episode: Fear and Loathing. <laughs>
1: With their lives in danger in New Vegas, Monroe and Connor face a difficult decision in order to survive. Back in Willoughby, Miles questions whether he can trust Neville and Jason to help take down the Patriots. Meanwhile, Aaron and Priscilla find themselves at odds over the nano code.
0: God, this week's revolution, it felt like Neville and Monroe's storyline somewhat switched places. Cause Neville now interacting with Miles, made me care about his plight much more. While Monroe and Connor's plight in the death felt like a way to waste time until we got to the next plot point since it was obvious Connor wasn't going to have to kill his father. Again, despite being total filler, I don't think this is a sign that Monroe's story is going to go down, because I liked where it ended this week, with Charlie saving Connor and Monroe could be given her own team of mercenaries, because it puts Monroe in the complicated position of being a follower instead of the leader he wants to be. Nico, what were your thoughts on Monroe and Neville's storyline this week? Can you share my opinion on their roles in this episode?
1: You know, Dan, I can definitely agree that the Monroe story this week seemed like filler and just a way to get from being captured last week to the escape this week and get Charlie some mercenaries to help fight the Patriots. Of course, Connor wasn't going to kill his father. Right. We knew that. But I can't agree that I was interested in Neville's side this week. I mean, I will admit that it is better than it has been, but I'm still not invested in him saving his wife or whatever is going on with Jason. Just not doing it for me. That's why I said it was somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) About the best thing to come out of all of this was Monroe telling Connor to find a woman, not Charlie, and settle down. I love the pointed comment of not Charlie. I about yelled, (laughs) hell yeah, when he said that. It was great.
0: (laughs) I think some of the writers that enjoyed Team in season two were having some fun with yeah. that line. Yes, I think you're right. Great emphasizing there. I love like that. But I did think Charlie's role in the episode was good. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a problem
1: with Charlie this season. I think she's right. a much improved thing. The problem I had was them trying to pair those two up, right? Exactly. Or or Monroe in her as well. That was a scary thought earlier in this season as well.
0: It was kind of like everyone thought, okay, they're going to let's let's just have Connor and Charlie hook up, get it over with, and then move on. Yeah. It's over. We're done. We got it out of our system. Let's go. She got what she needed. It's done. Yes. Now, it certainly wasn't the center of the episode, but the most important part was Aaron's story. As the morality struggle he and had over letting the Nanite live or die was very thought provoking to watch. And the fake out Aaron Paul himself in the position where he could destroy the program's code was quite a gutsy move for the character. But nothing topped the surprise from this episode ending with Aaron waking up in a version of 2014, where the power did go out which I believe to be the Nanites' version of the Matrix. However, with the Nanites comparing themselves to God, it's possible time travel for alternate realities could be behind this shopping. But we will see what type of explanation Eric Kripke and his team of writers send our way. Nico, did you see the surprise events for Aaron coming? Uh, do you have any crackpot theories of your own about it? Also, do you think this cliffhanger would have served as a much better off in the Olympic hiatus than Monroe's high ski being spoiled?
1: Dan, I suspected that Aaron or his ex-wife would try to pull something like this and try to destroy the nanites because they both felt that they were too powerful. I didn't know how he or she was going to do it or if it would work, but I suspected that one of them was not on the level and was going to try something. I didn't know what it was going to be or how it was going to work, but I did think something was going to happen. I had no inkling of that final moment when Aaron woke up in what appeared to be moder- the modern day if the blackout had not happened. I like your idea of the cliffhanger being the nanites version of the Matrix and would love to see that play out. That seems like a lot of fun. Yeah. Time travel seems a little too far fetched for me, but alternate reality makes a little bit more sense, except that it would have, it would have been 2027 in an alternate reality. So I think your Matrix theory, where the nanites are showing him something by creating a dreamlike world of hypothetical what what his life would have been if he had not created the nanites. Ah, uh, I don't know. But as for your last question, I absolutely think this episode would have been a better cliffhanger for over the Olympic hiatus than the Monroe's failed heist scheme. Seriously, what were these guys thinking? Not making this the Olympic hiatus finale. This was so much better, and this would have kept us talking about it over
0: the two weeks. Oh my gosh! Yes. You know? This should have uh, been like season finale of season one. I mean, this is it. This is such a big coincidence, it could have saved the show. Okay. Now I think it might be too late. It
1: might be, but I think it's, it, it probably would have been better to do this as the mid-season finale. Mid-season finale for oh, this yeah. season rather than the Olympics hiatus even, but.
0: That might have not been their call.
1: Yeah. It, re- it really might not have, or they might not have been able to get us to the point where it made sense that fast.
0: That's true. Cause something, yeah, cause. There might be something that happens with the other characters that we needed to know about. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of Trump.
1: there was a lot of stuff about getting Aaron out of Willoughby and everything like that that was important for his right. his discovery of the nanites and what they can do and him becoming you know having a superpower, but. You needed some
0: the, of that. The, the girlfriend and all that, too. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And and for him to turn against the nanites or yeah. want to destroy them, you needed some of that buildup. And so I understand them doing it that way. It just would have been nice if we could have seen this and maybe it could have saved this show
0: before it got too late. Well, his character wasn't in a place yeah. in season one where he could have felt the like this. Or even at the beginning of the season, he wasn't in a place. Right. Where he would make such a gutsy maneuver. Right. He was...
1: He was a weakling, a scaredy cat, you know. In the first season, he was very much the weak link. Yeah. And he is definitely a much stronger individual in the second season.
0: That's probably one of my favorite characters, it. Oh,
1: it's definitely
0: my favorite story yeah. of this second season. Thank you, Benny. Lund. Yeah. Okay. With that, we're going to move on to talking about a show that's also sadly on its way out, like Psych. And I think this show's going to start getting really strong as it goes out with only what six more episodes to go. Uh, yeah, I think so. So let's move on to the sitcom section where we're going to talk about the "How I Met Your Mark episode rally. <laughs>
1: When Barney suffers from the world's worst hangover the morning of his wedding, the gang tries to figure out the far-fetched ingredients to concoct the Stinson Hangover Fixer Elixir.
0: And before we get into what we thought about the episode, we're going to have Woo join us with his brief thoughts.
4: This week's episode of How I Met Your Mother, episode 18 of season 9, is entitled Rally. I love the old-school feel of this episode, It really felt like a season one or a season two episode of I Met Your Mother. Loved, once again, the chemistry between Milioti and Radner. I thought they had tremendous chemistry in the flash-forwards. You could tell, just looking at these two performers, that there really is a genuine trust and a genuine affection between the two of them. I love the way that Milioti looks at Radner. Like, you could... So you could tell that there is a true love going on there. And I know it's a performance, but you know what? I really feel the chemistry between these two. I loved Ted's comment about her book, and I loved their interaction at the end of the episode, but I'll get into that in a little bit. I felt so bad for Barney. I, I've had situations, not in, in my own personal experience because I'm straight edge, but I have witnessed my friends get really, really hungover. And, I mean, for the, for those of you who are not drinkers or, and are, no, are not people that party, we do know what it's like getting hyped up on so much sugar and then having to come off, come down off of that. And I've been told that Getting off of sugar is pretty much the, the equivalent of getting off of alcohol. Maybe not as strong, but you, you still feel the same after effects in terms of my headache is concerned. I love the whole thing with the hangover sins and Fixer Elixir. That is the easiest thing in the world for me to say. Loved Robin and Lily in this episode. Loved the callbacks to Tantrum. And one of the longest running High much Your Mother jokes got a new twist when Lily and Robin finally had their little homosexual moment when they kissed. It's really interesting, though, that when Lily kissed Robin, Robin seemed to like it and Lily was seemed a little bit turned off by it. I find that really, really funny. A great end to that storyline. The main point of this episode... Despite all the gags, despite all the weekend at Barney's, which I loved as well, but the main point of this episode was to address something that even Neil Patrick Harrison said even in an interview that the High Mature Mother creative, creative team and casted at the Academy of Arts and Sciences here in Los Angeles a couple years ago, which you can find on the Season 4 DVD, FPH has often wondered why are people friends with Barney? Like, he always, like, makes fun of them, always sets up these elaborate gags just to make his friend looks like morons. And in this episode, we find out that underneath all of the suits, all of the catchphrases, all of the, like, bad boy veneer, Barney really does love his friends. He does love them and respect them and think the world of them and he may come off as an arrogant jerk 95 percent of the time he is a true friend to all of his friends one last thing actually two things before I go loved the scene at the very end between Miliati and Randner again it, you know one of the bad things about the series ending the where it is is we're not we won't get to see. More interactions between Ted and his future wife and their family. I would have really liked to see more of that. And I do love what we've gotten this season, don't get me wrong. But I wish we, I wish we had, would get more just because there's, it, there's so much good chemistry. I loved, loved, loved the thing with Ted and bacon. Um, I remember the first time I had bacon. And my life has never been the same since. No disrespect to pescatarians or vegetarians or vegans. But bacon, it's one of a kind, man. Um, and I don't want to go too long here. I've already spoken long enough. Let's take it back to Nico and Dan. I'll see you guys next time. I can't believe this is the final season. But I'm enjoying every minute of it.
0: Thanks, guys. Thanks for the voicemail, Wu. And there are probably people out there who might have been disappointed with on uh, the premise of seeing the Knights, Ted, Robin, Marshall, and Lily got the most drunk. Serve so, well, off just another episode showing a point in each character's timeline where they had embarrassed themselves. Cause normally, I'd be feeling you guys. But with there only being about six episodes to go, I couldn't help but just sit back and enjoy the show. Cause this might be the last time we get one of these embarrassing moments episodes, 'cause episodes, because I have a feeling things are going to get very overarching story-heavy over the next couple of weeks. In addition, you can't count this episode as a total loss, because there were some solid final season content in this episode, such as Barney getting to see his fantasy of Robin kissing Lily, and the gang repaid Barney for how much he cares about them by actually pulling a weekend at Barney's, which turned out not to be so successful, but it was amusing nonetheless. However, with all that great stuff, as a huge superhero fan, I've got to say my favorite comedic moment from this episode was a drunken future marshal waiting a seat on the Supreme Court to announce that as commissioner of Gotham City, he's going to make Batman work harder. Great stuff. God, this might be up there as one of my favorite Marshall Erickson moments, next to him rocking out of the car uh, to the Proclaimers' song. So, Nico, what was your thoughts on this episode of How I Met Your Mother?
1: Dan, I too loved the drunken marshal acceptance speech announcing as commissioner of Gotham City he was going to make Batman work harder. Like, maybe even Shovel Snow. But I also enjoyed the weekend at Barney's photo shoot. But, you know, I was disappointed when they said that it never actually happened. That sort of... Cheapened it. Cheapened it. It took the whole fun out of that series. I still loved the pictures that they showed, but it just kind of cheapened it. Overall, this episode had all the makings of a well-written funny and fun How I Met Your Mother outing. Flashbacks, flash-forwards, the mother, a Barney Stinson history lesson, and everyone interacting in the same storyline. I loved the hangover elixir aspect of this episode. Over the years, Barney had come to everyone's aid when they were hungover by plying them with the Stinson hangover fixer elixir, created by Barney's relative, Dr. Stinsonheimer who looked an awful lot like Dr. Horrible. Which is great. I love that reference. Which he developed during the Too Many Manhattans project. Oh, I loved it. (laughs) This aspect of the episode was one of those classic How I Met Your Mother themes that make some of the better episodes of this series. And for that reason, this episode will stand out in this final season as maybe the last of its kind. To which I say, not bad, How I Met Your Mother. Not bad.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. It's this was a fun episode. I thought so. Yeah, I definitely with you on that. And also, the Drake had been used in previous episodes.
1: Were those flashbacks actual Some from episodes? Some of them were. Some of them were. Okay.
0: Because I, I think he did that. Ted had a meltdown, and that was one of the exits. Okay. And then I think they did use it when Marshall was distraught with Lily left in season okay. two. Okay, But it had been a while. Okay. So you may have to go back to verify.
1: Yeah, I, I, I didn't remember it specifically, but now that you say that, I do have a vague recollection of it or yeah. something similar. So absolutely, I like that callbacks.
0: Yeah. Okay, now it's time to move on to a good episode on this show that's kind of my other favorite show to watch next time that you want it it'll probably be its replacement for my book next year and that's New Girl with the episode Sister Part 2
4: hey girl what should
1: Jess panics when her sister Abby decides to stay in Los Angeles and sets her eyes on one of the loft mates. Meanwhile, Winston procrastinates about checking his test results for the LAPD entrance exam.
0: New Girl has this knack for bringing in these random characters, which always have a tendency to crack me up. Such as Outside Dave, the landlord at the apartment building, and Tran, the Chinese water therapy guy. So with that being said, my favorite part of this episode was that random old lady who wanted Abby to get off the hook of the car at the museum. Because they really gave her some great lines. Oh, and as for Justice Sister Abby, I've got a message for you. Leave poor Winston alone. Uh, Because that just wasn't cool what you did with him. Stop messing with the guy's head. So Nika, what was your favorite comic moment from this episode of New Girl?
1: Dan, good pull on that old lady from the car museum. (laughs) Funny stuff. I liked her too. My favorite comedic moments were a bunch of one-liners or random thoughts like Schmidt saying, can I borrow your glasses? We're going to role play as you two. You don't understand. She's not going to be you. I'm going to be you. Classic Schmidt. Also enjoyed the Nick versus Nick debate between Nick and Schmidt while Schmidt was hogtied on the kitchen island. Jess is going to kill me. She's going to say my name in that short clipped way where she doesn't add the K. What? When she's mad, she just says Nick. Do you really think that the K adds to the sound of your name?
3: Yes. How do you usually say your name? Nick. Say it without the K.
1: Nick.
4: It's the same thing.
1: Stop distracting me! Another one of my favorite moments was the whole Winston and Coach training session, especially when Coach said, How do I keep looking down? Good stuff. Another funny episode. I think the Abby stuff has run its course, so I'm glad I was sort of mistaken, and it appears that her arc will be resolved next week. At least that's the impression I got from next week's description, and the title okay so i think abby's gone after next week i could be mistaken once again but originally i i had heard that she was going to be around for the remainder of the season but it might just be these three
0: episodes i'm expecting this could be a cc schmidt heavy episode i think you might be correct because that's that's always entertaining so that that schmidt wasn't good in this episode Yeah, he had some great one liners, as I mentioned. Just don't go with him for tacos. <laughs> <laughs> don't look at me. Just look away. Look away or look, or, or look right at me. That
1: was so bad. Oh, I love
0: it. All right, so now is it time to move on to that wild and crazy show on Wednesday night, Modern Family. I think so. Where we had the Modern Family contend with another Modern Family. So let's talk about the Modern Family episode The Feud. <laughs>
1: Phil is upset to have lost his elected office of social chair to his nemesis Gil Thorpe and when he finds out Luke is competing against Gil's kid in a wrestling match, it becomes his own personal battle. Claire is nervous for a big client meeting, but things get extra hairy when Mitch and Cam ask her to pick up Lily from school and conveniently leave out the fact that her class just had a lice scare. Elsewhere, Gloria Chaperone's many
0: school field trip to the museum. It's clever in the summary. Things get extra hairy. like that. he were at a summary once. Anyway, my favorite comedic part of this week's Modern Family would have to be the return of Rob Rickle, because Phil's Arch skill kill Got the introduction of John Hurd, guys Gil's father who was revealed as a nemesis to Jack. In my opinion the choking sequence where Luke was praised as a hero for saving Gil's son when he was really attacking him was just priceless. And I loved it how Phil got to inflict his revenge upon Gill by having Lily infect him with lights. This was a simply brilliant comedic way to connect the two storylines. So Nico what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's episode of Modern Family?
1: Dan I've got to say that this was a weak episode with very few laughs for me. I did of course love the return of Rob Riggle as Gil Thorpe and the fact that John Hurd was Gil's father and Jay's nemesis too was entertaining. The fact that Luke was actually attacking Gil's son because he thought he was making the choking sign, was making fun of Luke's wrestling moves, was probably the highlight of the episode. So I'll have to agree with you that 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 whole sequence was the best comedic moment for me.
0: Yeah, but again, for the potential it had with the Gus yeah, I agree with you. It could have been a little more entertaining. Yeah, I mean,
1: there wasn't any one part that I could point to and say it was bad. It just wasn't his laugh out loud funny or really, you know, right. highbrow comedy even that we expect sometimes from this show?
0: Yeah. Okay, compared to you know, New Girl and Kyle, I Met Your Mother, they had great audience this week. Yeah. Yeah, I feel you on that. All right. So with that, we're gonna move on to a good fun show on Thursday night. That's getting a little different, but I still enjoyed it nonetheless. Uh, let's talk about the community episode, bondage and beta male control.
1: Professor Duncan decides it's time to seduce Britta and Jeff counsels him on how to close the deal. Meanwhile, Britta runs into some old friends and realizes they have moved on from their shared anarchist views of fall of Professor Hickey when he accidentally damages some drawings Hickey has been laboring over. When Hickey restrains Abed as punishment, the two wind up spending some meaningful time together. Meanwhile, Chang finds himself performing an impromptu one-man show for a ghostly audience.
0: With Troy now being gone... I really enjoyed how this episode of Community cut Ahmed and Professor Hickey bond and form a friendship over Ahmed destroying Hickey's cartoon strips, how the incident inspiring them to work on a police screenplay together. Because for my favorite comedic moment of the episode, I would have to go with Chang freaking out over the janitor he was talking to, or the audience he was performing for, possibly being ghosts. However, this fun random joke, which I know I'm grasping at straws with this one, but I thought worked as a great tribute to Harold Ramis got his writing of Ghostbusters, left me say. What the hell, in the words of Professor Hickey's Jim the Duck character, as Chang was shown in a picture of a Greendale study group from 1914. So does that mean he's the ghost? Nico, what was your thoughts on this episode of Community, as well as your favorite comedic moment?
1: Dan, I too enjoyed the team-up between Hickey and Abed to do a police procedural film together. As for your question about Chang, the photo was an homage to The Shining, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And also, the label at the bottom said that it was the old-timey photo club 2014, not 1914. Oh, okay. So it was a recent photo made to look like it was taken in the past, but was actually in old-timey clothes and photo club with Chang. But the whole thinking he was a ghost and not existing thing was a reference to the final scenes of The Shining, and also was my favorite comedic moment this week. As for the episode in general, on one hand, this was the least funny episode of Community so far this season, at least in my opinion it was. On the other hand, it was still pretty damn interesting and entertaining in its own offbeat way. Where the comedy was lacking this week, the progression and character development took over and led to an interesting, if not all that funny, episode of Community for me. As long as these are, are few and far between, it's episodes like these that adds. To the charm of this series, so when done properly, this is actually a good thing for community.
0: One, well, it's the magic of Dan Harmon being in charge of this show. It's what makes it unique, is they get away with these episodes like this every once in a while. Yeah, uh, that's that's what I like about it. it's something different. Yeah. Again, I'm right. It should be it should be every week, but they do do a good job with the character development uh, when they go with more of a serious episode. There's something worthwhile, even though sometimes not all the episodes are fun. Yeah. So that's a great charm that this show has and something that makes it unique and why I keep watching it. Because you never know what you're going to get when you tune into it. That is true. Because sometimes that's off-putting to people. Which is why the next show we're going to talk about is the number one sitcom on television. Because you normally get to say every week, but it's still great nonetheless. So let's talk about the Big Bang Theory episode, the table polarization. It all started with
2: the Big Bang. Hey!
1: Leonard bides a dining room table and it causes Sheldon to reevaluate the changes in his life. Meanwhile, Wolowitz is offered a chance to go back to space and Bernadette struggles with whether or not to encourage him.
0: My favorite comedic moment for this week's Big Bang Theory would have to be Raj using the Harry Potter magic wand remote control. Got his initial comments about the device. This might be my second favorite brown magic wand. Which, as you just heard, would be very awkward for me to read aloud here on the podcast. Also, I thought the dining room table storyline was a great way to expand upon the new feeling, kind of motions Sheldon experienced by kissing Amy in the previous episode. In addition, I thought Amy handled the threat of Sheldon breaking up with her in brilliant fashion until she got a bit cocky by trying to lure her Sheldon into moving in with her. But I think she's going to succeed in achieving this goal by the end of the series. So, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory?
1: Once again, Dan, I think my favorite comedic moment was the same as yours, and it would have to be Raj's comment about his second favorite brown magic wand. <laughs> I also enjoyed the whole mustache comments of the cold open.
4: Wait, then what is it if you just have hair up here? You mean a mustache? Mustache. Ah, uh-huh, very
3: funny. Make fun of the foreign guy. For your information, there are four times as many
4: Indians as there are Americans. So the way we say it is right. Say what? Moustache. <laughs>
1: I also really enjoyed the intervention they threw for Howard, along with the story of him throwing up in zero G and it floating back in his mouth and throwing up again and so on and so forth. Also having having real astronaut Mike Massimino make a return cameo in this episode and call Howard Fruit Loops was great as well. I love that this show gets great guests on the show like this, Bill Nye, Ira Flato, and all the other great guests that have They've had both actors and scientists alike. This was a solid episode of B- Big Bang Theory once again.
0: God, they really make them solid comedic characters as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, most astronauts you would not think have the best sense of humor, or at least not great comedic timing. Right. But Mike Massimino was great in both in all three of his appearances on this show.
0: He is—he's a character that's kind of taken on life of his own on the show. Yeah, yeah, you know, he's kind of beyond... He's a guest, but he's kind of gone beyond that for the show, which is fun.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's really good stuff, and I I love that they bring real real people in the science field onto the show because it makes it gives the show a little more authenticity.
0: And the cool thing is, they all enjoy the show too. Oh yeah, yeah, which is neat. So yeah, you know, another great installment for the Big Bang Theory. Look forward to seeing what they throw our way next week.
1: Yeah, and with that, I finally I think it's about time we jump into the airwaves rundown section. Yeah, it's
0: been long enough, hasn't it?
1: sci-Fi's poem for Monday's FX In USA characters welcome T we know trauma so we're gonna kick things off this week with the Walking Dead with an episode entitled claim.
0: The survivors have journeyed into the world beyond the prison could have found it is populated with various people. Carla and Mishcon search the neighborhood and discover tragedy while rick encounters scavenger. A trio of survivors have found Glen and Tara. God, our mission to save the world. I quite like this episode
1: claimed. It was split into three stories that each covered a group of people's stories.
0: Because the largest group
1: is still shattered into a handful of pieces after the showdown at the prison, The Walking Dead still has to pick and choose which stories to focus on until enough wandering around brings everybody together again. That means individual episodes can't cover every character. This episode turned to Maggie and said, sorry, you're riding the pine. Ditto for Bob and Sasha. And Tyrese, Carol, and the psycho and her meek sister got to take the day off as well and Beth and Daryl's arc was postponed for at least another week. That left us with Rick, Carl, and Michonne, plus Glenn, Tara, and their new military friends. Screen time is becoming more precious than ammo in this world, and until everyone reunites for a big group hug, the stories will shrink and we'll see smaller micro-arcs instead of the larger group dynamics of this ensemble drama. I'm not totally sure if this will work for the remainder of the season, but if The Walking Dead handles things like it did in this episode, it should be alright until all the groups reunite at the sanctuary and probably the season finale. So what did Claim do? It split up Carl, Michonne, and Rick, a group that just got together, into two different tales. It split Carl and Michonne into the Supply Runners and Rick Grimes in Home Alone. I feared that Rick's situation would devolve into another hostage situation, but both stories were pretty good in the end and it all worked out. Michonne and Carl's adventure began with breakfast cereal and an argument over the deliciousness of soy milk, which chiseled away at whatever barrier Carl had built up to forget that Judith was in fact dead. She's not really dead, but he doesn't know that. It continued with a demented game of 20 questions that focused on Michonne's past life, in which we learned that she had one kid named Andre Anthony, and the wrecking ball hit hard when Michonne found a family of corpses that appeared to have perished via murder, 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 suicide, with four children carefully positioned in their beds after being put out of their misery, and a mother painting the wall behind her with her brains. Though, I think that might just be my interpretation of what happened, but I think I'm pretty accurate on it. In the meantime, Rick was just looking to relax with some Jack London when a bunch of human jackasses broke into the house and pinned him inside. I don't know who these guys were or how they survived for so long seeing how stupid and pissy they were to each other, but they served their purpose as mostly faceless intruders putting pressure on Rick to think fast and not die. Their arrival didn't really serve any importance except to make us piss our pants a little bit on Rick's safety, and thanks to plenty of tension and some near misses, it was enough to nearly scare the piss out of me, even if the threat was simply human. So, I guess check that box off for how successful it was. And in our third story, Tara and Glenn rode along with the season's new characters. Let's meet them officially, shall we? First, there's Sergeant Abraham Ford, who should be your new favorite character already. And I do mean new favorite character, not favorite new character, because I love this guy. He's a realist, probably almost to a fault. And better yet, he's played by Band of Brothers Bull himself, Michael Cudlitz. As soon as he said his first line at the end of last week's episode, he became one of my favorite characters. With Ford was Rosita Espinoza, the woman wearing that almost sexy Army Girl Halloween costume who is probably going to be zombie fodder at some point and dr eugene porter a scientist who claims to know what caused this whole mess in the first place that last detail pretty pretty huge I suppose I should say that The Walking Dead has now made it past where I've read in the source comics, so I don't know how anything turns out. But the idea that that we might get some answers regarding how the zombie apocalypse happened presents a new goal for the series. I've always assumed The Walking Dead wouldn't ever search again for a cause or a cure after the abject failure at the CDC in season one, and that it would be a never-ending zombie horror. But a character knowing the cause is the first step to knowing the cure, and this might be the biggest step The Walking Dead has ever taken towards setting an eventual end date. Unless Eugene is full of baloney, and then it's back to everybody wandering around. And that is a real possibility, because Eugene is a bit touched. I mean, what kind of self-respecting scientist rocks that kind of mullet? Anyway, the cause of the outbreak presents a big question that The Walking Dead can answer. It gave me an idea, or at least an an illusion, of where we are going, and that's worth more than a hundred zombie headshots an idea of where we're going that is just what this show needed to once again ramp up the suspense and intrigue of course knowing this show's pace getting there could be a long way off if it happens at all at least we have the terminus slash sanctuary to look forward to in the meantime Tyrese Carol Lizzie Micah and Judith are on their way there Rick Michonne and Carl are headed there too and Glenn Tara Abraham Rosita and Eugene were following some train tracks so maybe they'll all end up there as well let's just say this has me excited about a possible major Arc for the first time in season four. So great stuff this episode. Great episode of Walking Dead this week. And another show that had a great episode this week was Justified with the episode Raw Deal.
0: Raelynn pursues a grifter. Meanwhile, Boyd and the Crows head south for business.
1: This episode is where we we look at Justify and say, a return to form, and actually mean it. A respite from all the wandering serial plots. This episode, Raw Deal, was a well-done, triumphant return to episodic plot. Instead of filling the screen time with Orange's the New Harlan material, we got a continued story about a guy stealing money through a scam gambling site which had a nice lead in from Raylan's morning walk-in duty. And whereas most episodes would have followed the brute with the gun, this episode followed the clever IT guy as he ran and got away with the money for a little bit. His backstory was neat and tidy and interesting as well. These were the kinds of characters justified used to indulge in if only for an episode and have seemingly faded away from this season. This episode This episode also reminded us that Raylan is pretty good at what he does, but he's behind the times and probably always will be. While a joke about Raylan wondering if he can comment on the internet post comes off as a bit of a throwaway joke, it lent a deeper meaning to Raylan's dinosaur ways and lends credence to how he'll never actually change, one of the bigger issues of this season and probably next season as well. Within this week's episode Raw Deal, all of the little things brought the bigger things into stronger, more deliberate, and meaningful context. Ava turning into the prison heroine delivery queen makes just enough sense to make things work. She's playing it fast and loose, just like Boyd does. It makes for an interesting set of problems and asks a much greater question. When will Ava and Boyd finally bite off more than they can chew and get their hands burned on the stove, to mix my metaphors? Boyd played it slightly more prudent in Mexico, but is only digging himself a deeper hole with each episode. As we get closer to the end, we're beginning to wonder if he'll make it out of the series alive. Cousin Johnny certainly did not. And Raylan's love drama was stirred just the right amount as Wendy Crowe attempted to throw a wedge between him and Allison, but was rebuffed by Raylan when she threw herself at him. The scene between them had just the right amount of chemistry too. There was some leading on and playfulness on Raylan's part, and Wendy was acting just enough to make it seem like she was interested in him, but was actually trying to pull a power play. Although all due credit to Timothy Oliphant and Alicia Witt, who plays Wendy, for that scene, it was it was very well done. While I've always been a proponent of justified serial plots, it's nice to see the episodic form come back, and with a very good one at that. This episode was written by VJ Boyd, who also wrote Guy Walks Into a Bar, Get Drew, and Kin all of which received higher grades than average Justified episodes, both on IGN and in my reviews as well. VJ Boy had some obvious talent in connecting the dots and getting the most interesting plots the right amount of screen time. While this week's episode Raw Deal wasn't the climax of anything, it tied things neatly in order to move them forward to our big ending that's coming. And this episode featured a lot of really good new stuff. An IT guy at the Marshall's office who doesn't have time for Marshall frivolities, a clever hook to get Ava out of the oranges, the New, harlan and into something that's sort of all its own and a neat little story about a computer savant with one leg wait tell me again how many legs he had just the one and then let's not forget boyd and johnny the Boyd johnny story in this one seemed a little reined in although almost muted and probably with intent for what happened it lulled us into a sense of security that greater things were coming and that Boyd and Johnny were both going to get out of this alive. And then it didn't. But then it did again. Then it didn't again. It was really what cleverly plotted. But Johnny's end seemed, did seem a bit premature. I guess I was just expecting something way more epic. Those damn crows got involved and everything went foobar. If the writers can capitalize on Johnny's death and replace it with something better, a strong, delicate balancing act of Boyd walking the tightrope in Mexico, then it'll probably be worth it. If not, we may be asking why Johnny was killed off. It looks like we'll get the former, but the latter will be lurking around the corner and in the back of my mind. Regardless, the ending was a great surprise and works exactly for this moment. In the melee of Danny being a dangerous hillbilly again, it looks like Johnny might might have escaped with his life, and yet it was just the turn to keep us on the hook for next week. And until next week, that's our discussion on Justified. As I said, another great episode of Justified. And if you want to talk about great episodes, this third show in the rundown series, The Americans, had an amazing return this week with the episode Comrades.
0: Elizabeth and Philip find that they have not only put themselves, got their network at risk, but also their family when a routine mission goes awry, Meanwhile, Nina starts to change her relationship with Stan, and Paige becomes more suspicious of her parents. This might have
1: been the best premiere of any show on television this year. Sure, Game of Thrones is still a month off, but this week's episode of The Americans was epic. The Americans returned with Philip and Elizabeth reunited and the Jennings household once more whole, and set up a hell of a sucker punch and visceral warning to the couple about where things could lead by the end. The opening with Philip in the midst of an undercover mission involving Afghani, who were very much siding with America in the 1980s, was a suitable brutal way to throw us back into this world. Philip is, after all, usually the more gentle and less violent of the duo at the center of this show, but when his mission is to kill some guys, he kills them, and even kills the young man working in the kitchen whose involvement is questionable. Philip not only takes no pleasure from this, it's something that eats at him, but the mission wins out. Once more, The Americans is a pretty fascinating look at morality and doing the right thing, or certainly what you believe to be the right thing, told from a side we don't usually follow and most certainly don't root for. And of course, there was once more the look at how a spy uses sex as a tool of the trade and just how messed up that can be. The scene where we see Elizabeth in that threesome was really confusing at first. Is it her? Wait, that's not Philip. Who is that and who's this other woman? Learning that the man was a mark and the other woman was a fellow Russian spy put it all into clarity while underlining what a bizarre life this is. It's all part of the job and if Philip and Emmett, the other half of the other spy couple we met, were bothered by what their wives were doing they'd long ago learned to suppress it carrie russell and matthew reese continue to impress here conveying the love and strength of these characters and helping us accept that their lives contain such outrageous scenarios that are simply commonplace for them i absolutely love these two actors in these roles quite possibly the two most suited actors to their roles on television speaking of sex holy cow on what Paige walked in on. That's a pretty specific act you don't see depicted in mainstream television or film almost ever. Of course, Paige's real reason for coming into that room was her continued suspicion about her parents, which I'm glad to see continued from season one's conclusion. I hope this arc pays dividends as we move forward this season. While I like Stan as a character, the premiere's only real missteps unfortunately occurred around him. First off, there was a clear attempt to essentially sweep aside the situation with Samford. Elizabeth's who was taken into custody last season and who was going to offer Stan everything he knew in exchange for immunity. The premiere revealed Stan found out nothing of consequence and then Sanford was killed, taking him out of play. It seemed like the writer simply felt that he was not a storyline that they wanted to deal with at this point and it was a bit clunky how it was undone. That aside, this was a great premiere, leading to a shocking, suitably traumatic event. The murder of Emmett, Leanne, and their young teenage daughter was horrific and jolting, both to us watching at home and to the Jennings. It underlined that this show would not back away from tough material, while also working as a highly effective plot device, giving Elizabeth and Philip a terrifying real-life look at their worst nightmare come to life, that their work as spies could end up harming their innocent children. At the same time, it sets up a mystery element, and it's not clear who exactly killed Emmett and Leanne, i also have to mention how wrenching it was when Emmett and leanne's son walked by philip in the hallway having his last moments of happiness before he opened that door and we saw philip's pain at wanting to stop him but not being able to because of his own undercover status the americans returned with a strong premiere that quickly raised the stakes while promoting season two the creators and cast noted that season two would put the focus more on the whole jennings family and comrades showed us why not just thanks to Paige's investigations but the horrific event that reminded philip and elizabeth just how much danger everyone living in their house is in great episode next up is a watch it or not review of a new show starring steve zahn and christian well, slater christian slater thank you yes i'm not going to give anything away but you should watch it and we're going to talk about the mind games episode pilot
0: A young boy with a heart condition is denied an experimental treatment from the opener of this series, in which a unique agency solves problems for clients by using psychological manipulation.
1: Looking for a new show to fill your leverage slash lie to me needs? Something involving a series of cons based on analyzed behavior with the purpose of subconsciously in- incepting people to act in a desired way, like Jedi mind tricks? This is the series for you. From creator Kyle Killen, whose projects include Lone Star and Awake, and starring Steve Zahn and Christian Slater as brothers, Zahn plays a bipolar genius and an expert in the field of behavioral science and knows, to a T, how people subconsciously react to everything from shoes to furniture placement to tone of voice. Zahn's character describes their trade as the real-life form of Jedi mind tricks. Slater plays his sleazy ex-con brother who spent time in jail for securities fraud for running, essentially, a boiler room. In fact, pilotitis aside, much of this episode is spent pitching the concept of the Brothers business idea to prospective investors, clients, and less initiated members of their own team, if only so the audience has a clearer idea of the shenanigans to follow, and an idea of what this show is going to be all about. In the end, in the watch it or not decision, this is a definite watch.
0: Next, let's hope it works out for Christian Slater this time. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. I
0: liked his last show. Yeah, we
1: both did. Yeah, just didn't get a fair shake in its second season and never really had a chance.
0: Darn you, Megan Mullally!
1: (laughs) Next up is another "Watch It or Not" review of a show, Mixology, with the first episode entitled "Tom and Maya." This is the story of ten strangers one night and all the stupid, embarrassing,
0: ridiculous things we do to find love. A okay, recently dumped man gets thrust back into the dating world for the opener of this series, to which single search for love to kind of a high end bar. In the-
1: Mixology is a new high concept sitcom from the Hangover writers John Lucas and Scott Moore. That concept is stated right in the top of the show in a voiceover that runs throughout the episode. This is a story of ten strangers one night and all the ridiculous things we do to find love. So if nothing else, Mixology will have the biggest storytelling hoops to jump through for a sitcom since How I Met Your Mother's ninth season, with its 24-like format of an entire season taking place in one night the premiere episode tom and maya thankfully doesn't try cramming detailed introductions of all 10 characters into the first episode instead it focuses on the title two and a few others tom played by blake lee is a too sweet nice guy who's just been dumped and his buddies are trying to jump his dating life while maya played by ginger gonzaga is his polar opposite a too tough mean girl all right i'm already bored the only way i can recommend this series is if you play a mixology drinking game to get through it i'm sure there's one out there somewhere or you could create your own i even gave the second episode a go just to see if it was a bad pilot and what i learned was this show is not for me maybe i'm too old maybe i just don't enjoy going to a bar to get lit and hit on women i don't know just not my cup of tea so far as to watch it or not if you don't care about character development or progression mixology is a perfectly fine way to kill a half an hour because it clearly doesn't mind coming off as shallow and trivial if you simply want a series to fall asleep to that requires little to no brain power to follow, then I can say with 100% certainty, Mixology is going to be that. But if you want a comedy with direction and purpose, I'd look elsewhere. There's plenty of other good comedies out there. This is a definite don't watch in my book. So just to recap, one recommended watch, one recommended don't watch. Now we're going to talk about another Watch or Not series entitled About a Boy with Its Pilot. <laughs>
0: Will Freeman, a loose bachelor, starts to connect with his son from a crazy vegan neighbor. The pilot episode
1: was basically a very condensed TV version of the feature film, essentially a Cliff Notes version of the movie, if you will, setting up the characters and creating a tentative bond between them. If you enjoyed the film with Hugh Grant, then you'll probably enjoy this cheaper, less produced version of the story in the pilot, but maybe less than someone who has not seen the film but enjoys the premise. The best part of the pilot is Benjamin Stockham, who plays the kid in this series. He's excellent. That being said, this is a difficult, recommendation for me because I plan to watch the series just for fun but definitely not review it but at the same time I don't see it lasting beyond the first season thus my recommendation for the show is watch if you have the time in your tv watching schedule skip if you don't you won't be missing much so just to recap guys that's one watch one don't watch and one maybe
0: watch watch the movie instead
1: yeah the movie was better but the the show's not bad I think it's gonna be funny and I'm gonna watch it week in week out it's just not something I want a review on a weekly basis. Alrighty. Next up we're gonna jump into a show that
4: Thank you Nico and Dan and wow we're back with the New Direction section. My name is Willis Kim and alongside me is Mr. Andy Babacht and Andy could you please give the official description for this week's episode called Frenemies.
3: Santana and auditions and snags the role of Rachel's understudy in Funny Girl, causing a feud between the, 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 the roommates. Meanwhile, back in Lyonmite, Tina and Artie compete against each other to, to class Valid the Victorian.
4: I thought this episode was okay, pretty good, but that's pretty much all, all it is. First of all, I loved Kurt's per- Kurt's paranoia about Starchild and him trying to find more about Starchild, but really it was the weaker point of this episode. What do you think, Andy?
3: I'm um, I actually quite enjoyed it more than some of the other parts. I I'm glad that Child I realized that Kurt was up to no good biz business basically. So. I don't think it was the weakest part, but I can see where you're coming from. Um, it was interesting. It was fun.
4: And we didn't mention this in the in the episode, but I, re- I really like that Star Child Adam Lambert actually had a story in this episode. Like mm-hmm. like before he was just you know hey I'm hey over the top gay guy. Let's everybody look at me. And now, but now he actually had lines and actually had an actual story other than the audition episode. <gasps> Um, going to Lima, going to Lima. Oh, Lord, um, yeah. I love, I love, and this is something that we didn't talk about off microphone either. There always has been a little bit of resentment from from both Artie and Tina since they broke up at the end of end of season one, start of season two. And I love that they put kind of brought that up at, in this episode. The story I thought was okay again, but the um, the um. The writing was just really good with the, the between the characters, maybe not the story. What did you think, Eddie?
3: I think that this episode really showed not just us, but also Tina herself, that she's really become... This big monster, basically, because when she knocked already over by, from the wheelchair, you know, by accident, of course. I think that's when she realized that, you know, oh my God, this is a wake up call. It, this is just crazy.
4: Yeah, I, I think I think anytime you knock a, a guy in a wheelchair over, like you're taking it a little too far. Take it from somebody who knows, but um. I literally called Tina the a female dog after he did that to Artie. I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Uh, like, <laughs> I think a lot of people did. Yeah, and I was expecting Kitty to slap Tina. I actually wanted her to. No, oh, we got her in New York instead. Yeah, and that is actually a great segue. But before we get there. May I just say, Sue Sylvester had some of the funniest lines in this episode. And I'm i with her, too. When they were doing the speeches to see who got valedictorian, who ended up turning to be Blaine, surprisingly enough. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I actually wanted to throw up, too, because that was just too sweet for me.
3: I was just laughing my butt up the whole time, because they still ended up just going against her words in 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 a different way.
4: Yeah, the main event. New York, New York. I understand Rachel's frustration, I do, and I told you this one way before we started recording, Mm -hmm. Finn Hudson would be ashamed of Rachel.
3: Yeah, and also, you know, know, to to our listeners, we're not trying to use the Finn card, you know, every time Rachel does anything bad. But, you know, this was just for a returning episode and seeing, you know, what it was all about, why she got so mad. Like, let's look at the scene before, you know, the other shot. Santana said to Rachel that one day I hope I will be able to be as just as good as you. And Rachel really appreciated that. So I. It's kind of a contradiction between, you know, in the writing and also, you know, what we saw in the episode because technically, you know, Rachel should have been at least a little bit thrilled that, you know, Santana wanted to become like her. Because although that could also give her that kind of conclusion to what happened in high school between them, you know, she could. But, actually, but
4: when you bring that up, think of their past. Santana has done nothing but tear Rachel down from the moment they met. And, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm not trying to use the Finn card either, but I will bring it up here. If Finn was still around, he would tell say to Rachel, "Don't be catty. Don't be petty. Just do what you do best. You want to show everyone why she's the understudy and you're the star. Just be the star that you are." That's what he would say, and he would be right. Yep. Yeah. yeah
3: it was. It was.
4: It was very up to be honest. And re- and really and truly, I think this all stems back from the fact that, that Santana was the one that slept with Finn first and not her.
3: Yeah, obviously, obviously they didn't bring, bring it up because of, um, you know, because, you know, they, they don't want to touch too much on the Cory subject, but, um, I'm but, sure that is one of the unmentioned reasons.
4: But let's face it, like, th- that's where the rage is really coming from, not, not anything else, and, uh, and I'll vouch, with with Finn dying, with Finn dying, with Rachel all this close to getting to her dream and to be taken away by the one person that tormented her for four years in high school, or three years in high school, I should say, um, that that must be really hard for her. But she took it way too far.
3: Yeah, it's um, it's gonna be interesting to see how they actually recover from from this. Now that she moved out, and you know, they're gonna be working together, sort of, and they're just gonna be pissed and.
4: Yeah, I think, but, uh, you know, truly, I think Rachel's more pissed at Santana than Santana's pissed at Rachel.
3: Yeah, I think Santana's probably going to be open with, you know, forgiving her as soon as possible. I think, you know, if, you know, if Rachel just comes around, I think Santana's probably going to be okay with it.
4: Because uh, cause I'm a Rachel fan, you know I'm a Rachel fan, but Rachel was wrong in this episode. One thing that I missed, though, where was Demi Lovato? Yeah, I've been
3: missing her for you know for a while. I mean, I mean, I hope
4: they bring her back next episode because she's really needed. They may, that's what happens when you make a character so good for the for the show. We need to see her more. Kind of like, and I'm not gonna go on off on my own man, but kind of like Emily Bett Rickards, um, Felicity Sp- Smoke on Arrow. Yeah,
3: no, w- I think we will see her soon again. Maybe okay. in the hundredth episode.
4: Okay. Do you have anything else you want to say, Andy? No, I'm glad the show is back. I'm still
3: wondering what how you know what they're doing this season. I think they need to figure out themselves. A bit. Yeah. I I think that they need to figure themselves out of bit.
4: Yeah, I really I really have nothing to say. Um, it felt really weird watching Glee after almost three months off, but I'm glad we're back. And let's take it back to Nico and Dan. Four out of five for this episode. What did you think, Andy? Mm, week four out of five yeah i'm I'm probably with you there let's take it back to nico and dan see you guys next week bye bye
1: next up we're gonna jump into a show that i pretty much like every week it's not maybe as good as let's say walking dead justified or the americans but it's still a pretty solid police procedural and i enjoy every week and that's elementary with the episode the one percent solution
0: Tensions rise when Sherlock and Ken Watson are teamed up with Lestrade to find the person responsible for a bombing. This
1: week's elementary featured a wonderfully twisty mystery that pitted Holmes and Lestrade in an adversarial collaboration. When a bomb targeted a group of 1% financiers... Holmes and Watson quickly found that Gareth Lestrade had been retained as a detective-slash-go-for for for the company's CEO. With a coconut water in hand and a ridiculous submissive assistant in tow, Lestrade at first seemed like the epitome of egotistical self-deception, obnoxiously calling for a private helicopter and lording his supposed power and skill over the irritated Holmes. However, as events unfurled, we got to see more of Lestrade's inner struggle and vulnerabilities, reminding us why he's actually a sympathetic and interesting character. What I really enjoyed about Elementary's take on Lestrade is that it's a new spin on the character that builds complex nuances upon the foundation of the original Lestrade. Unlike the show's version of Mycroft, this Lestrade has quite a bit in common with his literary predecessor and the version from the classic television and film versions before. Lestrade always was putting his foot in his mouth, trying to outsmart Holmes, and here we have much of the same scenario, with Sean Pertwee infusing the role with a great blend of hubris and a barely repressed inferiority complex. And the idea of Holmes letting Lestrade have credit for his solved cases is also from the original tales, although now we're getting to see the consequences of this deal, which is very intriguing. Somewhere between his mistrust and resentment of his former co-worker, Holmes also seems to feel some amount of responsibility for this situation. Perhaps this springs from the fact that Lestrade's problems all stem from desperately needing to appropriate Holmes' genius, something Sherlock allowed him to do for too long. While it's nothing Holmes put into words, it is intriguing to consider how this might color his feelings towards his old colleague since Lestrade would have at least had more of a chance to develop his own professional identity and skills had Holmes not made him his public mask while not wanting to shovel coal on Lestrade's ego Holmes hesitates to encourage the monster he feels largely responsible for creating once Holmes and Watson realize that Lestrade had been involved in some of the sketchy CEO's dirty work Holmes soon confronts him about the matter Given the creepiness of Lestrade's employer, it seems certain that he was behind the bombing, so it was a cool twist to have the true perpetrator be a seeming victim, the undersecretary conveniently seated at the end of the table. The complex subtlety of the woman's criminal genius was worthy of an original Conan Doyle tale, and I really enjoyed it. Ultimately, this was a good mystery with the added fun of the return of Lestrade that allowed for some fun with the competitive aspects between Holmes and Lestrade to solve the case. I look forward to seeing him back on the show in the future, seeing where life takes him now and under what circumstances he might again encounter holmes and watson until next week that's our review on elementary now we're going to move into the final show of this week's long episode and that is Grimm with the return episode entitled revelation
0: nick and hank trek down the wesson killer who has taken an interest in nick Meanwhile, Monroe deals with the aftermath of his parents discovering that he plans to marry a Fuchspal. Can I say that right? Fuchspal. Fuchspal.
1: Yeah. Not bad, though. (laughs) All right. Grimm is back. And it's okay because this episode was the sort of purely awesome episode that Grimm needed to remind us of why this season has been generally great and to make us forget about that weird period of mediocrity between Christmas and this episode. This episode has the distinction of being one of those episodes of Grimm, or really any show, where a ton of big, serious, important stuff happens, yet while all all the realness is going down, we're laughing because there's also a lot of understated and genuinely funny humor thrown into the mix. Like Nick brandishing a knife at dinner when the vessant at the table started acting up. Pretty classic. The only glaring weak spot that I noticed was that Monroe randomly got all pissy about Nick only calling him when he needed help on a case. And you know what? that That's just not true. Grimm has long made it clear that Monroe and Nick are actually very good friends and we've seen them hanging out just for fun or mutually helping one another out More more than a couple of times i'll chalk up monroe's comments to nick visiting in a really bad time monroe's ultra-traditional parents still aren't really on board with monroe and rosalie but they're at least willing to work on that sort of i guess maybe i don't know <laughs> we saw that they're not so rigid in their beliefs that they'd completely reject their son based on his life choices while mama and papa loot aren't 100 percent team monroe and rosalie and the road for those two crazy kids is far from clear at this time i have a good feeling that That's going to work out. I think they're going to be fun. Meanwhile, in Vienna, Renard thinks the monster baby is his. I think we all assumed it was his anyway, but it's nice to have confirmation, or at least something close to confirmation. Renard can stake a claim all he wants, but we won't know for sure without some tests done. Operating under that assumption, though, Renard arranged for a hasty escape for Adeline when he got word that Stefani was working with the royals to something, something evil and nefarious, something, something, because none of us saw that coming either, right? I mean, that kind of blindsided me. And then Adeline went into labor, Roll credits, see you next week when the something worse comes into the world. I love that, that they called Adeline's baby something worse than what we saw this week. Great setup, Grim, for next week. Has me really excited for the birth next week. It's going to be good stuff. All right, guys, that's about the last of the reviews for this week. Good yep. stuff. Now we're going to move into the voicemail section this week. Her call
2: has been forwarded, for, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system.
0: It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone, please record your
1: message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. We already yes. played Wu's voicemail about How I Met Your Mother in this that section this week. So we don't have another one, but I do want to thank Wu for his great comments this week. We look forward to hearing from him and maybe some of our other listeners next week so we'll have sure. more comments to play in the voicemail section. Also, if you want to tweet at us, you can do that. We'll read it in the voicemail section. And just a reminder, if you'd like, call 773- 809-3363. Give us your thoughts or feedback or a review on one of the many new shows. Maybe we haven't reviewed. We hope to hear from some of you soon and would really love any of you guys that want to be a part of the show.
0: Especially our new listeners that have found us through the mix.
1: Yep. Any of our new listeners, if you'd like to be a part of the show, if you'd like to let us know you're listening now, give us a voicemail. Once again, I'm going to give that number to you guys. 773-809-3363. We'd love to hear from anybody who joined us through the mix. We're really happy to be partnered with those guys and really, it's going to, I think, bring a couple more eyeballs and listeners to the to show so that's good stuff.
0: And I'll give you guys a little more info on the mix after we get into the closing. But first we're going to have Nico tell everyone as we go into the closing what's happening on next week's episode.
1: Yeah, we're going to continue on next week's episode to cover the Spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on The Following with Andy and Nico, Castle, Almost Human, Intelligence, Person of Interest, Supernatural, Psych, and Revolution, and our sitcom section including How I Met Your Mother, New Girl, Modern Family and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on The Walking Dead, Justified, The Americans, Elementary and Grimm and maybe a few more things that I forgot. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website across the
0: Yes, for sure. And also you can check us out. Got a new home now on the Mix radio station, which is an online radio station available. And I need to add the links to the Mix to our website. But basically, um, in addition to our iTunes feed, our Lipson feed, got our regular RSS feed, you can listen to us on... The mix again yeah, basically um, you can check out our podcast there weekly on Friday at six PM in the time slot that was graciously given to us by Jack Stife, the owner of the mix. And our other podcast shows are available on the mix as well at various times. But I'll let Andy and Michael share with you of that information on their respective podcasts. And so you can check us out on the mix and our regular site of this before and the links to the mix are going to be coming on the site soon, so keep an eye out for those. Also, I recently set it up that there is a layered on our main website that will play all of our podcast episodes right off of our website. So if you're having trouble figuring out iTunes or don't use it or are confused with our lips and link, you can basically listen to our podcast episodes right on the website in both ACC and regular MP3 formats. So I just figured that would make the things easier for you guys who are confused on how to listen to our episodes. So those are two big things from our sites that you can check out and hopefully will raise up our listener numbers. Until our next episode, you can check out our spinoff podcast. We've got It's Tangent Time, which is a podcast hosted by Michael, Jay Petty, and Woo Kim. They basically choose a topic that's going on in the entertainment industry. They basically talk about it for an hour to an hour and a half. So you can check that out for a mixed bag of topics about the entertainment industry. Also, we've got Across the Airwaves DC Nation podcast, which is briefly on a hiatus right now. To kind of be rebooted because more of a DC news source. So we're going to be more so reporting on news coming out of the world of DC entertainment rather than reviewing things. So we're hard at work on that. And also we've got the Helicarrier podcast, which is hosted by Andy and myself for the current time being. And basically that covers episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in more detail. God, we'll be covering the next new episode of the show when it returns from hiatus. So, if you like Marvel's Agents of Shield, God, watching that show, check out the Hello Carrier podcast for in depth reviews on every episode. God, if you're a fan of the hit CW TV series Arrow, you can check out ATA Log Walters, the Arrow podcast, hosted by Michael, J. Petty, and Wu Kim. God, that basically is a podcast that covers episodes of Arrow in greater detail on a weekly basis. God, they will be covering episodes of Arrow once the show returns from hiatus, which I think is this week. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us with variety of ways by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. Okay, there you can email us at acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. Okay, again, it's acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. You can also like our site on Facebook where you can follow all of the movie and TV news that Nico reports on during the week, because all of the rest of our podcast members. Okay, also, you can stay updated on our podcast episode releases. Okay, for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter or join our circle on Google+. Plus. Also, as we mentioned earlier, you can leave a voicemail sharing your thoughts on any of the shows we cover or suggestions on our shows you'd like us to, to cover. Okay, what number can you call to do that?
1: 773-809-3363.
0: Yes. So call us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from some different people from week to week. We love Woo's voicemail. But we'd like to hear from some of the other people out there as well. Also, you can check out our YouTube channel, which has all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming TV show episodes, as well as previews for upcoming movies, including Guardians of the Galaxy, which will soon be posted on our site. And we also have trailers for X-Men Days of Future Past, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and a whole lot more. So if you're excited for summer movies, check out our YouTube channel for all those previews. Also, we have recently set up an app with Stitcher Radio which is available by visiting our website and clicking any of the links for that. So it's a free app. We're hoping that that app will be much more successful in helping out ATA compared to the podcast box. got Android apps which aren't selling that great right now. So for an easier app to use, got easier access on our phone, you can download our Stitcher app. Also, we still have the podcast box, which will let you stay in contact with our podcast, Got listen to our episodes on your iPad or iPhone. Also, if you're on an Android or Windows device, we have our Android app, which will We'll let you listen to our podcast episodes. That is available on the Amazon markets. So with that, once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babacht, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm
1: Nico Resteck.
0: And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. See you guys. Have a great week, and all of our thoughts and prayers go out to friends and family of Harold Ramis. We will see be you return to our regularly scheduled program.